Today's episode of Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard is all about hardcore Holly. Hey, I got an idea. How about we beat some house payments up this month? Well, I like the sound of that, Mr. Holly. Here's what we're talking about. At SaveWithBruce.com, you take a little summer vacation from your house payments. You can skip your next two house payments, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. But maybe best of all, in two months, you've got a cheaper monthly payment. How much can they save, Big Dust? Two, three, four, five hundred dollars a month, baby. Even more than that. Sometimes something to wrestle fans have saved six, seven, even eight hundred bucks a month. Hang on, baby, but you talking about people with perfect credit, ain't you? No, sir. You don't need perfect credit to save money at SaveWithBruce.com. Even credit scores in the 500s will qualify. You can even buy a house with no money down. I'm talking to you if you're still a renter. After all these payments, what have they got to show for it, Macho? They ain't got nothing. Uh-uh, nothing to show, brother. Nothing at all. Freak out. Freak out. Uh-huh. But it's going to take all day to do, right? No, sir. Come on. You know the deal. It's a couple of clicks right now at SaveWithBruce.com. You couldn't even find another apartment this easy. You'd have to pay your first month's rent, your last month's rent, and a security deposit. But we can get you a house of your very own with no money down right now at SaveWithBruce.com. Whether you're looking to remodel your house, maybe turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket, or just get into a brand new house, we can make it happen right now at SaveWithBruce.com. And it's important to remember when you go there, you're dealing with me, Conrad Thompson, First Family Mortgage. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a meat. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shock him. Q Bruce. Ah, Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I don't think I uh, could be better, but you know what? I'd always like to figure out a way to be better. So it's all good, man. It's all good. Another day in paradise. You know. <laughs> I'm glad you're starting with that. I guess we should address it. Are we going to acknowledge anything that's happened on Twitter lately? Or are we going to just uh, oh, kayfabe it? Fuck, please. What? Is something happened on Twitter? Allegedly, there's an old promoter that you've had a thing or two to say about and through the course of our show, and he's now got a Twitter, and uh, everybody takes their shot at the king, and right now Bruce Pritchard's the king. Well, yeah, if you're gonna, I mean, if you're gonna take a shot at anybody, you might as well take a shot at the guys on top, and that's what I've always learned. But the the thought of this person being able to actually put thoughts together to go on Twitter and be as witty as whoever's doing their Twitter has been, um, the few things that I've seen, I doubt that that's a reality. That's just me. I could be wrong. Yeah, I've been wrong before. There was that one time in uh, 69, I think it was. Hang on. Just so I'm clear. You're saying that the Jerry Jarrett Twitter account is not actually Jerry. It's someone else. I have no idea who the hell it is. But you're alleging but that you don't believe that that's really him. 
it's not it doesn't appear the few things that i've seen to sound like the individual that i had dealt with many years ago let me ask you this how would it sound like if the real jerry jarrett tried to get on twitter well you know conrad first you would take the twit and you would put well you know and then you would go to the and you would well you know and you would hit with saying you know and then from there you fiddle fuck around well a lot of that going on uh, i guess i don't guess you're gonna respond on twitter because i mean he doesn't have the blue check mark you don't know that's really him so anyway it's out there if you're into it and uh, what else is out there is a pretty successful love to know episode i gotta tell you this was not our most downloaded episode but it was one of our most fun to me i loved our, our funny opening and what i love about those shows the most is that we sort of get to bounce around and we get to cover so many topics in one episode as opposed to today where we're going to take a deep dive on a single subject when we do get to bounce around like that maybe once a year or so it's a lot of fun well it's a whole hell of a lot of fun what people don't know is that essentially we just let air what our usual open is until we get to about the seventh or eighth take that's not true we don't have seven that, right unfortunately now. that's not true but sometimes we just kind of get down there and just say hey fuck it you know well, okay. what that what else you- that's what's fun is, is it is true before we turn the microphones like on <laughs> and we're recording <laughs> hey how are you fucking tired I'm how are you what day is it i don't know how many pages are these notes I'm oh god god damn it conrad it's 82 pages who the fuck cares about bob holly this much i just want to say i got an idea and then roll credits huh, yeah. damn they like it when i do that but yet here we are and uh lots of people and maybe someone of note had a comment about our british bulldog episode do you want to catch us up here well you know i, I did kind of wonder in the back of my mind how Davy Boy's family might react to the episode that we did. And I got a nice, first of all, I saw the tweet that Harry Smith, Davy Boy's son, put out there acknowledging that he listened to the show and that he liked the show. But I also got a really nice DM from him. And I've always liked Harry. I've known him since he was a kid. And I remember, you know, always watching him run around as a little kid. But it was nice to know that he enjoyed the show and that the family enjoyed the show. And I'd like to give a shout out to, to Harry Smith who's doing really well and it was just nice to get that uh get that acknowledgement from them well i tell you what it made my week monday to uh turn on monday night raw and see that someone took my big head there and managed to get it front and center for most of the show we had a super fan there in the crowd who was holding up uh i'm a bruce pritchard guy and he was wearing i'm a conrad thompson guy shirt man this dude was all in on us uh, what do you think of uh, seeing our stuff all over Monday Night Raw yet again? Uh, you gotta love it, and then this is uh, encouraging. I'm, I am actually going to be at Monday Night Raw this Monday in Houston, Texas. So I encourage all the fans in the hometown city of Houston: bring your signs, bring your big heads, whatever it is you've got to plug something to wrestle with or something else to wrestle with in the crowd in Houston. We love you guys and appreciate you because without you that we wouldn't be here doing what we enjoy doing yeah super cool and and we're able to uh, keep doing what we're doing on the road you've got a big announcement you want to share with everybody right the city of angels we coming back on saturday november the 17th now we're going to be in los angeles the day before the survivor series and 
Survivor Series taking place in LA. Tickets go on sale. If you're listening to us on June the 1st, they go on sale at 1 o'clock today, 1 p.m. Eastern. Get your tickets. Head on over to BrucePritchard.com. You know, last time we were in LA, sold out. Man, we had a lot of great guests from Will Sasso, X-Pac, Chavo Guerrero, and you never know what the hell is going to happen. I'm excited to be going back to LA in November. And there's still tickets on sale right now for June 16th at the House of Blues. We sold it out. They added some more seats. You can still snag them. And there's plenty of time to catch NXT. We were just talking before we clicked record, kicking around a little rumor and innuendo about who our special guest might be. You don't want to miss that. We're also going to be in Rochester on July 7th, Pittsburgh on July 15th. And I was told by the local promoter, tickets are going to sell out on that probably in the next week. So if you're in Pittsburgh and you want to come see us, I would do it sooner rather than later. July 15th. You can pick up your tickets for all of these shows, including our return to Gramercy Theater, our home away from home, New York City, August 18th, right before SummerSlam. Go check it out right now at BrucePritchard.com. And there's a sale going on right now at BrucePritchard.com. If you buy five shirts, you get 25% off your order through Monday. So don't miss that. It is the five-year anniversary sale for Pro Wrestling Tees. And when you pick up five shirts, you get 25% off your order automatically. No coupon needed. And uh, there was no coupon needed for our John Cena episode on the WWE Network this past Wednesday. One of the things I want to catch everybody up on before we get going on our Bob Holly episode is I know that we've gotten some feedback from some of our diehard listeners, and we appreciate you listening here every single Friday at noon. But one of the things we've heard is, when are you going to cover something new? Well, we started with something new with WrestleMania 14, but what we're trying to do with this show is, as Bruce would say, put a new paint of coat on because you're seeing this show. Yes, you've heard the Vince Russo episode before, but you haven't seen it. And had you seen it, you would have seen never before seen footage. This is by design, guys. We realize that the WWE has a ton of footage that they've never aired and they really have no purpose to ever air, but they just collect it all. So if we're not showing it to you, you may never see it. There's lots of stuff on that Vince Russo episode you've never seen before. And we've got some big surprises coming up. Do you want to give them a tease of some other things that they might be seeing on the WWE network this season? Well, we're going to be talking about, uh, next week, we're going to be covering the WWE CW years, but you know, people want new. Okay. And they want us to talk about something new as well. There might be, are we allowed? Are we allowed to say those three letters? Wait, hang on. What letters are you talking about here? I'm not sure that we can say those. You mean TNA? Are those the ones we're not allowed to say? Are we going to talk about TNA on the WWE Network? We might not only just talk about TNA. We might talk about the magnificent, the phenomenal one. I'm, that's that's all I can say. I mean, uh, we might talk about a phenomenal one. I can't say his name. What if I just gave initials? Well, I mean, you gave initials to the company. You, you can at least give us initials here. Don't say his full name. Just give us some initials. Okay. Uh, A and J. We might be talking about him coming up and uh, Drax, the Destroyer. <laughs> we'll be covering him later on. So we're going to throw some new topics in there and some different things. 
that you may not get here on the podcast. Don't get upset at us for that either. It's only $9.99 a month, and you get access to the entire WWE network, and you get the pay-per-views, and you get us with a new episode every single Wednesday. But we are available all the time, on demand. All you have to do is go pull up the shows. Check them out. I think you're going to like it. Go back and check out the old shows as well. The old shows, meaning stuff you haven't seen before okay maybe right. you've heard us talk about vince russo but i'm telling you there's footage in there that million dollar man episode is an excellent example of that you see behind the scenes footage of them shooting all the stuff at betteridge jewelers where they debuted the million dollar belt just awesome stuff that man you're just probably not going to see otherwise so check it out wwe network something else to wrestle Which i gotta tell you a funny story before you do sorry a funny story you and i were talking and i didn't even realize it but especially on the Million Dollar Man and the Vince Russo one, there was footage I didn't even know existed. I get so sick of listening to myself talk, I don't want to go back and look at myself and hear me talk, but I went back and watched both of those because of the never-before-seen footage, stuff I didn't even know existed with Roddy Piper, with the Million Dollar Man, with Russo. So it's worth it. Have we self-plugged enough? I mean, it's kind of what we do. You know, I feel like we should remind everybody that you're about to listen to a two time, two time podcast of the year. And it's all because we know how to give you what you want. And man, this guy is what you want. It's Bob Holly. Robert Howard was born on January 29th, 1963 in Glendale, California, a big wrestling fan growing up. And he grew up on the Portland wrestling out of Oregon. So after high school, he decides he wants to chase this wrestling dream. He hears about a school down in Pensacola, Florida, and he moves to Mobile, Alabama. Can't believe anybody would do that on purpose, but he did. And he started to go back and forth to Pensacola to train. And he was trained by Rip Tyler and Bob Sweeten. He says they were charging him about 3000 bucks to train, but they gave options of making payments along the way. And this Pensacola territory is one that doesn't get talked about a lot. But in real life, Arn Anderson would say it was probably one of his favorite territories because it was just hard to beat the beach life and you didn't have the long drives. What was the rap on the Pensacola territory that you heard? Well, I think the boys liked going to Pensacola for that reason, because you could be home every night and you had the beach there during the day. Pensacola is a beautiful place. Um, guys liked it. It was short trips and they were easy. And Bob Holly going and learning under Bob Sweetan is, well, that's brutal. Bob Sweetan, not one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. He was, he was just a mean, nasty guy in real life and always smelled like rotten fish. Yeah, basically, he smelled like a bait shop at all times. Even like when he'd come out of the shower, he was kind of stinky. So to have that much drive and want to be in the business bad enough to be around Bob Sweetan all the time, that's really wanting to be in the business. I guess we should mention here, because this is going to be something we talk about later. Bob came up at a time when everything was really hush hush, especially here in this school. They're not smartening him up on anything. They're beating the shit out of him and they want you to quit. And that's sort of their goal. And he even says, sweet Tan fucked with us physically and mentally because wrestling is a tough business. It takes a certain mentality to survive. And he wanted to see if we had it. Most of the guys flat out didn't have it. Is that fair to say that in this era, you know, late seventies, early eighties, even on into the early nineties, there were a lot of schools where their goal was to really get you to quit. This was almost like a secret society. You got to weed out the pussies and that's how the old timers looked at it. If you couldn't take the, the physical, just drilling, 
then the business wasn't for you. And they would weed them out right off the bat. And usually guys would quit after the very first workout. Those guys that came back, if they could take the physicality of it, then they would start in on them and they would start with the punishment. They would start teaching them holds and shooting on them and, and seeing how much punishment they could take. They came back after that and they continued to come back and have a good attitude along the way. Then that was a keeper and that was someone that they would continue to train. But you didn't get smartened up. A lot of guys did not get smartened up to the business per se, that the business was a work and the real inner workings of the business until they had their first match. Which is just amazing when you think about how much this industry has changed. Now, of course, wrestling at that level is not really paying the bills. So he's working as a mechanic and he learns how to be a welder. But for extra money, he would sometimes do a little boxing. But maybe the, which I guess is interesting because we're going to talk about Brawl for all in a minute, but I digress. This is a great story. And Bruce, when I was doing my research and I ran across this, I thought, fuck, I cannot wait to talk to, to Bruce about this. Bob once wrestled a fucking bear. He says they brought the bear out and it was pretty impressive. He wrote in his book, it was about six foot four and must have weighed a little over 300 pounds. And I'm going to read directly from his book here. Let me tell you that motherfucker was strong. It probably would have taken Mark Henry and tossed him around like a rag doll. Here we go, Bruce. Are you ready for this line? I'm, okay. Give it to me. <laughs> I didn't think I could take the bear. I just, <laughs> I just thought it would be a good story. Something entertaining. It sure was. And all at my expense. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I was afraid I might hurt the bear and then I feel terrible. Now I'm not saying I'm a monster who can whip the shit out of anything, but I didn't know how much I could do without hurting the bear. I knew that it could rip my head off if it wanted to. And I also know that when you play rough, somebody always gets hurt and that somebody was probably going to be me. So I kind of danced around with it and took it easy. I tried to muscle it down. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say that didn't go well. I was no match for a bear. I wasn't, no, stop. I wasn't going to punch the bear. Punching it would have probably just pissed it off. And if it got too excited, there wasn't a damn thing anybody was going to do about it. What do you remember? He says he still has the video of this and he says, it looks like he's doing okay. And then that fucking bear bites him on the top of the head and that's it. And, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> he says that basically in this video, it looks like the bears fucking sexually assaulting him. And that ended his bear wrestling career. This is the most absurd and Alabama wrestling story of all time. Is it not? Well, trust me, if that bear wanted to have sex with him, that bear would have had sex with him. It may have been having sex with him and he just didn't know it, but wait, didn't know well, it. Are you, are you insinuating that that bear had a little penis? No, I, I wouldn't do that. Cause the bear could whip my ass as well. I don't want to fight no bear because if I got in there and I start starting to fight the bear, then the bear might get pissed off and hurt me too. So fuck that shit. I ain't getting in the ring with no damn bear and, uh, nobody's going to be in a damn bear. You know, I listened to this shit from like Bob Holly and John Layfield, who also wrestled the damn bear one time. And the guys who, who go out and get drunk and want to go wrestle the bear and actually think for a second and even just that split second that they could take the bear. You ain't going to take the damn bear. And this wasn't even a working bear. The working bears, at least you had a chance. Working bears. They're working bears. Ben was a good working bear. Victor was a good. Ben was the best working bear. Victor could be a little temperamental. Vic, Victor didn't fucking like putting people over. 
uh, this is amazing to me. Um, he starts out working the little crowds, of course, the spot shows, if you will, 30 folks or so, and he's working guys who maybe aren't in the best shape in front of small crowds, but it is how you progress. And he gets this opportunity after about eight months or so of training where I guess you would say he graduated and he starts wrestling as Hollywood, Bob Holly. And he says, Rip gave him that name. And he was like a, a white meat baby face. Did you ever talk to, uh, Bob about his early days and how he sort of trained and came into the business? Because this was 1987 is when he makes his debut and wrestling is hot, but that's if you're with Jim Crockett promotions or if you're with the WWF, but even the other territories like world-class and AWA, they were really sort of circling the drain. So while wrestling may have been hot for a couple of promotions, really everywhere else, it was on a downturn. Was it not? Well, it was for, yeah, for a lot of the regional promotions and everything because the big two were touring nationally and starting to take over. But it was, you know, I didn't, I'd never heard of Bob then. I got to see the Hollywood Bob Holly gimmick many years later when he was a heel and after he had been in the business for a little while when he went to work for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But I never got to see Bob when he first started out. He's working for not a lot of money. It's the story that a lot of indie wrestlers start with $40 a night. And he's got all these expenses on top of it. Well, he must've been on top if he is making $40 a night in Pensacola. There you go. Um, he learns a sort of an interesting trick of the trade. And it's something that you've always sort of gotten a little nervous about talking about here on the show. He says, I also need to get used to other common practices in wrestling, such as making myself bleed. Most people nowadays seem to know how this is done. You cut off a corner of a razor blade, wrap it up in tapes. Only a bit of the edge is exposed and then cover that with tape until the time comes to cut yourself. And then you hide the blade somewhere on your body. Some guys put it in their trunks, others, their wrist tape. And I always kept it in my mouth. It was much easier and more convincing. I didn't have to dig around for it. I just get it, put my hands to my face in order to sell the hit, spit the blade out into my hands and boom, away I went. People ask me how I managed to not swallow the blade. Well, it's simple. You just don't, unless you want to have a major problem later. Of all the different places to hide the blade, why was the mouth so popular? It does feel like the only one that there could be serious repercussions from. Yeah, I don't know that the mouth was real popular. Some guys did it and some guys, you know, it's a matter of preference and what, you know, people were more at ease with some guys kept it on their fingers on the edge of their fingers. So all they had to do was look like they were running their finger across the top of their head. A lot of guys kept it in their wrist tape, um, you know, different strokes for different folks and superstar Billy Graham used to tape it, you know, literally tape it into his finger tape and use it that way. But everybody did it differently. I watched, you know, Tully Blanchard was the first guy I ever saw that carried it in his mouth that I knew of. And, that's just the way they preferred it. So that was a, to me, a risky proposition and different strokes for different folks. Was there ever a time when you had to quote unquote, get color? Nope. If you would have, where would you have? I mean, if you had to do this, where would you have carried yours in my wrist? Yeah. I mean, I carried my wrist tape. There you go. So he bounces around, but of course he has a run through mid South wrestling, which is ran by the Jerry's Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. And this is a, a time where even though the wrestling business may be down a little bit, they're still getting a lot of coverage in Memphis because wrestling 
has always been a big deal in Memphis. This is directly from his book. The promotion got a lot more coverage in the wrestling press and on TV than wow ever did. So I thought it was going to be my ticket to the WWF. They didn't make me and Pat any promises in advance about our push or what they would pay us. They just said, quote, you'll make enough money here to live comfortably. Now the Pat he's referring to there is friend of the show, Pat Rose, who has a tremendous fishing show in Chattanooga, uh, on the hook with Pat Rose. You should check that out. If you're into fishing and live in that part of the country. So anyway, let's talk about this. You'll make enough money here to live comfortably. That's what Jarrett tells him. This is directly, uh, from his book here. I guess that depends on whose definition of comfortable that you are referring to. Nobody was making money. The most I ever made working for Jeff's useless fucking pappy was $189 for two weeks work. That's $189 for 12 shows. That's 15 bucks a match. You couldn't even eat and get to the shows on that. Everyone piled four or more into a car to travel. And I took showers at the buildings, ate nothing but crackers and Vienna sausage because I couldn't afford any other food. And then I slept in my car in the rest areas. It was terrible. Meanwhile, Jarrett and Lawler were putting all the money in their pockets. The only wrestler they paid well was Jeff. He was driving around in a nice vehicle, making a ton of money. And what could any of us say to him? His dad was the promoter. Jeff was a real dickhead back then. Still is. As far as I'm concerned, he reminds me a lot of triple H and that's not a good thing. Jeff will stab you in the back because he's not man enough to stab you in the front. When you talk to him face to face, he's charming and he'll suck you in, make you feel you can trust him. But as soon as you're gone, he'll bury you and you'll never know it. He's the furthest thing from a man. Woo. He's fucking cutting promos in this book, boy. What do you, what do you remember about the paydays in Memphis? Cause this doesn't feel like a unique story. This feels like the same story. Everybody tells when they talk about working for Jerry Jarrett in Memphis. That's why I'm always amazed when you hear the glory of, of Memphis wrestling and the genius of Jerry Jarrett. Um, because for the most part, these are the kind of stories that people get from there. And if he was making $189 for 12 shows, again, he must've been on top. Um, but you look at, you look at a guy like Bob Holly, you look at Steve Austin when Steve Austin was working in the Memphis territory and eating nothing but potatoes. And he had to lay carpet. He worked for a carpet company during the day so that he could afford to go wrestle at night and be a wrestler. So, you know, the Memphis territory is not, uh, does not have a good reputation for their paydays, never has. And I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that ever made good money in Memphis, whose last name wasn't Jarrett Lawler or Dundee. You want to comment on his uh, attack on Jeff Jarrett, our good friend of the show? Well, I, Hey, Jeff, Jeff is a good friend of mine and I like Jeff. So I think that there's a lot of people that don't like Jeff and that have that feeling about him, that he was put in a position. He was the promoter's son, horrible position to be in, but also at the same time, it's good position to be in because you're going to be used. He is getting paid and he's on top. So guys are going to look at him jealous wise. And also it's just a horrible situation to be in. And a lot of people, I think Jeff is one of those polarizing figures. You either like him or you don't like him. And there's very little that are in between. I think that's maybe the reason you and I get along with Jeff, because people have that same reaction for us. I mean, you either really like us or, or you don't, or you fucking hate us. I mean, yeah. the hate for me and you, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's there. Which I'm, 
Yeah, and I'm fine with it. You know, it's America. Uh, I love those that love me, and I love those that hate me, too. Uh, I don't Wait, have no, time no. for it. Don't say it like that. Come on. What do you do? I love those that hate me. See, that's how you know. I really doing. love those that love me. I even like you a little bit. Isn't it fun? We've been doing this so long. We ju- you just know where I'm going. So he so sometimes you gotta fucking knock me over the fucking head with a baseball <laughs> bat, but I get there eventually. Uh, I'm old, a, okay. It's a lot easier than some other shows I work on. I'll tell you that. So hey, let's talk about this. He's making so much money working for Memphis. He fucking quits wrestling and goes back to Mobile and gets a real job. Eventually, he gets a call from somebody who wants him to come to Atlanta, work a couple of shots for the NWA, and he even makes a six-man tag team match with him and two other enhancement guys against Sid Vicious, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. And he's in the ring for like 40 seconds, and he gets 250 bucks for that. Quote, it would have taken me three weeks to earn that with Jerry fucking Jarrett. I thought, hell yeah, I'm okay with earning that sort of money for a long drive and less than a minute's work. They called me back to do another squash match soon after that. Easy money, I figured. I drove to Atlanta, walked into the arena, and was told, you're working with Flair. That's a pretty big upgrade. I mean, even though a lot of guys, you know, were doing enhancement matches, when you're working with Flair on TV, that's a pretty big deal. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, anytime. Uh, you know, you get to work with the top guy and be put in that position. I think that the, the bigger deal of being able to get in the ring with a Ric Flair is, you know, A, that you're not going to be abused and that it's an opportunity that you may not be the best worker in the world, but he's going to make you look like, you know what the hell you're doing. So it, it's, that's a pretty day. Yeah. That's a pretty big deal. He says he met him beforehand and introduces himself in the locker room and says, Mr. Flair, I'm working with you tonight. I can do pretty much whatever you need me to. And allegedly Flair says, all right, just listen to me out there and just walks off. Didn't shake his hand, talk about the match, nothing. Quote, this was Ric Flair, the biggest name in professional wrestling, and he acted like it too. I got so wound up before the match, I just didn't want to fuck anything up. But he hadn't talked to me about anything. I didn't even know what the finish was going to be. I had to go out there without knowing a damn thing, listen, and just do what he said. It was intimidating, to say the least. Of course, when he says, you know, Flair comes out, he says, I might have looked calm, but I was panicking on the inside. I mean, that's sort of... Rick's MO, is it not? Let's call it in the ring, kid. That was everybody's MO. You know, you got in the ring and you did what you were told to do. If you were an enhancement talent, especially working with any kind of an old pro, you just shut up and you listened and you did what they told you to do in the ring. Harley races, you know, the classic deal working with Harley at TV. Harley would sit there smoking a cigarette and say, what's your finish, kid? They tell you his finish. I'll move. That was it. That was going over the match. You got two words out of him. I'll move. And you went in the ring and you listened and you did what they told you to do. You followed and do your job. And that's because, you know, the veteran calls the match, right? That's just wrestling protocol. Yeah. For a TV match, something like that, the veteran's always going to call it. Usually in in a regular match, a heel's going to call the match and lead the match. For a TV match where you're working with enhancement talent, the veteran's going to call the match. The star calls the match. So in this match, Flair doesn't just eat him up. They have a back and forth match for about 10 minutes, and he actually gives him something. He calls it a great experience because he's brought in to make guys look good. 
and he made flair look good and flair made him look good. And he's feeling pretty good afterwards. And he runs into Jim Cornette who says, don't come back and do jobs here anymore. And if I can, I'll get you a job somewhere. What do you know? A few months later, Jim calls and says, Hey, I'm starting Smoky Mountain wrestling. Cornette has him get a flashy robe and some sunglasses. And what do you know? He's Hollywood, Bob Holly again, except this time it's a proper heel gimmick. He says he's going to be one of the main heels and it sounds good, but he wasn't sure because he's only making $150 for each TV taping and he'd been burned before giving up his job. So he comes to a compromise that he would work Monday through Thursday at his real job and then do the house shows on Thursdays and Saturdays. And then of course the TV tapings on Saturdays, uh, smoky mountain wrestling, man, it helped a lot of guys like this sort of launch their career and gave some other guys a place to work. Guys like Robert Gibson, uh, Ricky Morton, the heavenly bodies. Talk to us about Smoky Mountain Wrestling and why it was an important territory. Because it was wrestling the way you fucking liked it or loved it the way it used to be, motherfucker. You know, Smoky Mountain was, uh, was, it was a passionate project that Corny had. You know, Corny was, was looking to have his own wrestling promotion. He was convinced that he could essentially run a Southern wrestling territory, make it profitable and unfortunately, Corny ran into the same obstacles that every other promoter before him ran into, that a Southern wrestling promotion or any small wrestling promotion like that really wasn't sustainable in in those times, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. It just wasn't something that people were going to be able to support, that you were going to be able to make money for any long period of time with. And eventually it went under. It was a great idea. And it was something that was good for a while. It gave guys a place to work, but unfortunately it just wasn't enough to sustain for any length of time. Yeah. And it is unfortunate, but Bob at least has the foresight by not quitting his job, but because Smoky mountain does, of course, eventually go out of business, but he can't put over Cornette strong enough. He says Cornette knew how to run shows. He knew how to tell stories and he gave him money out of his own pocket to go buy new clothes and everything. He says he would have loved to have worked for Jimmy full-time but he just didn't feel confident quitting his job since he had been burned with that before. But eventually this seven days a week, four days, regular work, three days on the road, doing shows, uh, he just can't sustain it. He only is able to pull this off from April of 91. I'm sorry, October of 91 to April of 92. And then he's out of there and he's just back to working again. Did you ever have a conversation with Bob about, you know, what he thought about his wrestling career at this point, because he's clearly out. He's still working his real job. He's going to try his hand at, you know, doing some race car stuff and some racing stuff, but he's really done with the wrestling business for a little while here before that call comes from JJ Dillon. Did you ever have a conversation with him about, you know, what he thought his future in wrestling might be, if anything, I did once he came up and it was Cornette who initially brought Bob to our attention and showed us pictures. He looked good. And, and Bob was somebody that Cornette had wanted to, I think he wanted him either in the heavenly bodies or do a different version of the midnight express. But Cornette was really high on Bob Holly. And he, he talked about him being a good human being. He was young. He was a hell of a worker. He's a young Bobby Eaton motherfucker with hair. And, uh, Bob was just, you know, he, he looked good. He was in shape. He moved well. Uh, he kind of looked like, I guess I would c compare him to a young Bret Hart at the time, the very first time that I saw Bob Holly and the gear that he wore and everything else. 
And it was Cornette that first brought him to our attention. And, you know, we decided to reach out to him. It's sort of interesting because he writes in his book through a mutual friend, Paul bear passed some tapes of his matches to Stanford. And of course, yep. JJ is in control of the hiring and firing. Chat me up though. Why did you credit Cornette when he sort of credits Paul bear? Because I'm sure Paul bear was probably one of the people that came to him and Paul bear did put in a good word for Bob Holly as well. And did tell us about Bob Holly mobile but boys. From, yeah, they were mobile boys and they were friends. So when you're looking for other people, you know, you're asking around anybody heard of this Bob Holly and Paul had, and Paul did put a good word in for him. And I don't think, well, no, Cornette didn't have his territory at the time, but for all Bob knows, he probably didn't even know that Cornette put a good word in for him at the time. And it was probably Paul bear that said to him timing wise, you know, Hey, I talked to him up there. That and call, he did. That call comes in November of 93. So technically Corny did have the territory, but either way we're splitting. Okay. Hairs. Yeah, so, he did. You're right. Let's talk about the, the meeting. He goes to Stanford. He sits down with JJ and Vince McMahon for the interview. And he wrote in his book that everyone was very polite, including Vince. His first impression was that he was a nice guy, but the interview doesn't last very long. And they just talk about what he'd been doing the last few years. And he told them that he had, you know, started a little bit of racing and still working his job. And they thought he was a solid worker. And they didn't explain to him what he would do, who he would work with, how they would use him, what his gimmick name would be. None of that stuff. They just said they were going to give him a contract and give him a job as a wrestler. And he says that was good enough for him. That doesn't seem like it's that normal usually. And maybe we've been led to believe different information, but I've always been led to believe that when Vince had a, a meeting with a guy, especially in that era, he usually had an idea for him. Like I see you as whatever, or at least that's the way you've laid it out. Was that not common? And that's really the exception, not the rule. Well, it depended. Vince always wanted to judge guys on meeting them and getting the chance to talk to them, find out what made them tick. So a lot of times people may come in and say, Hey, here's this guy. This is his gimmick. This is what he does. Vince didn't like a lot of that because he wanted to form his own opinion and he wanted to come up with his own ideas. Yes, he would look at things, and yes, he would say, all right, maybe I have an idea. But there wasn't a whole lot of personality to Hollywood Bob Holly, other than being a good hand. And we were looking for a solid hand to come in. I don't know that we were really looking for a guy to put in the main event at that point, but we were looking for a good, solid worker. And there wasn't a whole lot of grandiose ideas for Bob Holly until after Vince had that initial meeting and found out about the racing. Well, the racing leads to the name Thurman Sparky plug. And Holly says when he first heard it, he thought, who the fuck is Thurman Sparky plug? But he says, you know what? I'm on TV. I don't give a shit. And later he found out that it was actually JJ Dillon who came up with the name and the character. They wanted to make him like a two sport superstar, both in the ring and on the racetrack. He says that's not what he would have chosen, but he figured it could have been worse. Repo man comes to mind. You were there. Chat me up. Thurman Sparky plug. Who booked this shit? Is that really JJ Dillon? I don't know if it was JJ or Vince or if they came up, came up together with it. But, uh, you know, JJ didn't have a whole lot to do with creative at that time. Uh, he may have suggested it, but the whole thing was, howdy folks. My name is Thurman plug. My friends, they call me Sparky. And then it was going to be STP was going to be the logo, like the, the oil STP. Um, 
so that's how the whole Thurman plug, my friends call me Sparky, uh, came about. And <laughs> I, I remember Vince pitching this, and I'm going down to do vignettes, and, and he's giving me this whole spiel. And I'm just looking at him like, Thurman? Like, really? The rest of it, the STP, the plug, the Sparky plug didn't bother me. Thurman bothered me. I just can't we just call him Sparky Plug? I mean, just leave it at that. I mean, if I, but no, STP. Do you know that Therm? This is actually the second Thurman we've talked about here on something to wrestle. Is it really? Yeah, the first. Who's Thurman, the other Thurman? The kid from Bad Santa. He's Thurman Merman, Harley Race Junior. Ah, oh, King of Sandwiches. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, the King sandwich shop that's available right now over at brucepritchard.com. Tell everybody about all the fine shirts that are available over there right now. Bruce, baby, we got all the fine, like the, like the second most recognizable athlete in the world over there. Do, do, do. I used to be over colossal tussle pronouns, pal. Damn it. Who booked this shit? Monday Night Love. They're all available at BrucePritchard.com. And right now, if you're listening to this on Friday, June the 1st, all the way through Monday, you buy five shirts, you automatically save 25% off your order. So head on over to BrucePritchard.com, clip on, <laughs> clip on, click on merchandise and go on over and get yourself about five of them beautiful Bruce Pritchard uh, tees. And eventually, I'll call you and say thank you. Let's talk about the initial vignettes that they shot. They apparently were shot at a racetrack in Pensacola, Florida. What do you remember about those? Who's they pal? I shot that shit. The snowball derby in Pensacola, Florida is where those were shot. Uh, they were shot in December and I remember going out. I I even want to say, man, it was like, I think December 9th, the snowball derby and it, it was like a stock car race there in P Cola and Bob was going to be racing in it. So we got the permission to shoot a bunch of vignettes where we could actually have him involved in a actual race and get him to do a lot of his vignettes on the racetrack and around the actual environment. And Vince was intrigued with this whole racing car gimmick. NASCAR was a big deal at the time. Still is a big deal. Um, and just think, man, if this guy's good enough and we could actually train him and he could be a good enough driver, this could be really great to have somebody on the NASCAR circuit and in the ring as well and be a two sport star. That was the original idea. His first match goes down on January 11th, 1994, Florence, South Carolina, Barry Horowitz. He says he was nervous as hell the first time he walked in the locker room, but he introduces himself to everybody, finds a spot where nobody was, sat down, shut up, and listened. And he said he didn't say anything or try to fit in. He just did his thing. He was only speaking when spoken to, and he hoped that they accepted him. Is that the best advice ever for any new wrestler in a new locker room? I would say that's the best advice for uh, for anybody in a new environment, kind of keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut and just check out your environment before you, uh, rather keep your mouth shut and let people think you're an idiot than open your mouth and remove all doubt. What did Vince think of him when he first sees him, you know, and how, what did he think of the vignettes? I mean, he is sort of 
being this happy go lucky, super smiley character. You know, my friends call me Sparky and you can call me Sparky too. Gee whiz, you know, golly. Hey guys, all that type of stuff. Well, that's, yeah, believe it or not, uh, in a lot of respects, it's kind of who Bob was, but not really. And it was, that's what Vince envisioned. And that was kind of Vince's vision of that Southern NASCAR driver. Golly gee whiz, not just happy to be here type thing. Um, that's what he wanted. You know, that's what he was looking for out of, out of Bob Holly and, my God, that's what he got. I think Vince was pleased with the vignettes. I'm not sure that they hold up in 2018, though. He starts wrestling a lot, of course, in enhancement matches on Superstars and Challenge, and then eventually makes his pay-per-view debut at the Royal Rumble in 1994. He comes in at number 17. He doesn't eliminate anybody, and he's eliminated by Sean and Brett, but he got to wrestle um, a considerable amount of time in here. I mean, like over 20 minutes. I guess you guys wanted to give him a strong showing, even though he didn't eliminate anybody, letting him hang as a newcomer is sort of a vote of confidence, right? Well, yeah. And it was a way to let people know that he's not just, you know, he's not an enhancement guy. And this is somebody that's going to be a part of the roster and allow him to get into the mix in a featured match on a pay-per-view. Uh, after this, he starts to spend a lot of time with Rick Martell and he credits Rick Martell with helping shape his early career here a lot. Um, he says Martell helped me out in the ring too. When I first got to the WWF, I was working with him at house shows every night for what felt like forever. I learned so much from him. He was a great wrestler, very smooth in the ring and a good storyteller. Sort of one of the more underrated and unsung heroes of professional wrestling. And he's not in the hall of fame. Any good Rick Martell stories you can share with us? You know, Rick Martell will be in the Hall of Fame. I think that Rick Martell is one of the best damn workers that ever laced up a pair of boots. And if you can't learn something from Rick Martell, then there is something wrong with you. But Martell was just such a smooth, smooth talent, smooth worker, you know, inside and outside of the ring. He was respected by everybody, never really had any problem with anybody. And Martell was one of those guys like Bob Holly. Everything about his diet was, was measured, and he was one of those really, really clean eaters, liked to work out twice a day. And that's the same thing with Bob Holly. So Bob liked traveling and being around Rick because they shared they shared the same likes. They they both loved to work out. They both were really health conscious and diet conscious. So they man, they clicked right away. Uh, let's talk about the WrestleMania 10 situation. He finds out he's going to be on WrestleMania 10 and he's ecstatic. It is a bit of a filler match because, well, there's a lot of folks here. It's going to be Bob Holly or I'm sorry, Sparky plug one, two, three kid Tatanka and the smoking guns against Rick Martell, Jeff Jarrett, IRS and the head shrinkers. He doesn't care. It's a filler match. It's on WrestleMania and it's what everybody wants to be on. But finally, when the big day comes, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon go out there and just tear it up at their ladder match. And they're having the match of the night and they keep going and going and going. And eventually he hears the sentence that makes his heart sink. We're going to have to pull the 10 man. They canceled the match and went straight to the main event. He says he wasn't mad at Sean or Scott because they had a hell of a match. And he was just this new guy. Who was he to say anything? But apparently Randy Savage was furious. 
And he felt like these guys going long was really a screw you to everyone else. You were there. What do you remember about this? I'm the one that pulled the match and, and I'm the one that, that made the decision because those guys did go long and it sucked and it did affect everybody else. And that's why, you know, when we talk about guys going extraordinarily long in matches, well, what's the big deal? It's a great match or, or the rock and Mick Foley go 12 minutes heavy on a promo. Oh, but it was a great promo. It affects everything else down the line and it's a domino effect. So it sucked that those guys had to have the match pulled but you have to look at the overall show and you have to look at, again, priorities. I had to make sure there was enough time for the main event and there wasn't enough time to do both. So made the decision. We had to pull the match and it sucked. Randy Savage was livid and Randy let any and everybody know that he was livid. He did go, you know, and tell Sean and Razor and let them know that he was pissed off and it was disrespectful to everybody else on the card, not just the guys in the 10 man, but to the main event and to the, overall show itself so yeah that that definitely did happen and savage was pissed um brett i believe was pissed off as well but you know shit happens and you got to move on well the match does take place and it goes down on march 21st this uh this 10 man and they lose to irs jeff jarrett rick martell and the head shrinkers hypothetically if the Tonka were to uh, comment on this match what might he say to his uh, tag team partners here I don't know why that doesn't get old for me. Not long after Mania, you guys go on a European tour and Sparky plug is working with Bastion Booger throughout the tour. And he says, this is when he started to have problems with the click. He says, uh, Sean's buddies tried to make his life. Well, everybody's life, a bit of a living hell. He describes Sean as the biggest asshole in the company. And he says that triple H would ass kiss his way into the group when he showed up in 95 and then kept kissing ass all the way to the top of the industry. And that he and Sean were just complete dicks. He says when they would go overseas, everybody's given cards to fill out a food order for the bus. After the show, he would shower and get dressed and go to the kitchen to get his food, but it wasn't there, which he thought was a little strange. And eventually he starts to talk to Randy Savage and Rick Martell. I'll let you take it from here. Well, you know, the. He was going and every night they had, you know, they had catered meals during the day and then they would fill out a food order, just kind of write down their name, write down what they wanted at the end of the night, the end of the night, after their matches, after the show, you go pick up your food, take it on the bus with you and take it back to the hotel or, uh, eat it on the bus on the way to the next town. And so as Bob tells the story, he asked Randy Savage and Rick Martell, you know, Hey, my food's not there. And Randy says, you will assault somebody tearing up a food card. I know who it was. Uh-huh. It was Sean. So, um, Bob Holly being Bob Holly and Bob is a, you know, in your face, stand up guy. Apparently as legend has it, you know, went in and confronted Sean and asked him what his fucking problem was. And Sean said he didn't know what he was talking about. And they kind of had a, had a confrontation in the dressing room, verbal confrontation, but with Holly telling him, you know, you're fucking with the wrong guy, quit fucking with my food. And that was, you know, pretty much the gist of it. Nobody fucked with his food from that point forward. But, uh, you know, Holly, upon hearing who he was told was doing it, went in and confronted and 
miraculously, things apparently got better after that. Yeah, it is a little weird. Um, he wrote in his book that when he confronts Sean, he says, Sean, what's your fucking problem with me? And he says, Sean looked at him and says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he says, the fuck you don't. I don't think I need to remind you. If you've got a problem with me, come to me and you can discuss it with me. But the next time you touch my fucking food, I swear to God, I'll cut off all your fingers with bolt cutters. Do not fuck with me. And then Scott jumps in trying to be a tough guy. This is directly from his book. So he turns to him and says, motherfucker, don't come any closer or I will fucking drop you. And he backed up and says, Hey, come on. There's no need for any of this. And Holly says, I'm nobody to fuck with Scott. Don't try me. And eventually when everybody sort of settles down, Savage looks at him and says, that's the way way you fucking handle things right there. Is that about the way you remember it? Yeah, I wasn't there. I mean that, you know, everybody was, was talking about it, but that's, you know, pretty much it's handled in the dressing room and you move on. So that's, that's what I'd heard. That's what Bob wrote in his book. The very next day. It's not done as he's heading into catering. He sees Hall and Nash sitting on one of those stage equipment boxes being dicks to everybody who goes by and Nash smarts off to him. So he stops, looks him straight in the eye in front of everybody and said, you say one more word to me and I'll knock your ass out. And then I drew an X on his chin with my finger and said, this is where I'm going to hit you. And Nash couldn't believe it. Quote that some bitch just sat there and looked at me as if to say, what do I do now? They never fucked with me again. Is this right? Did you hear that he drew an X on his chin? That's where I'm going to hit you. That's some shit, man. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I only heard it, you know, from Bob Holly's book. I never heard it any other place. So I, again, I have no idea if that actually happened or not. Knowing Bob Holly, do I think I could see that happening? Absolutely. I could see Bob Holly doing something like that. Bob doesn't give a fuck. He just really don't. I don't give a fuck. See that X right there? That's a knockout. Then I'll take the belt. Then I'll do it again. Bob says he's not happy when he gets home. Uh, he's only been there about six weeks and he gets his uh, check for the first two weeks. And it's a couple hundred dollars. And he's pretty disappointed. Uh, he, he says it didn't get any better after that. He says, quote, one time I was on the road for five weeks without a break. And I got a check for $50, 50 fucking dollars. All the boys told me always get your advance every night because you don't know what you're going to get paid. There were four of us piled up in a rental car, four of us sharing a hotel room, and we spent our time 24 hours a day together, seven days a week. That seems really hard to believe, man. I know that business is, I know business is down in 94, but no, you're fired up. No, because again, you have to put things in perspective. He may have gotten a check for $50. He may have been taking draws. And if that's all he got was $50 for two weeks, then I'm sure he was taking draws every night that counts back against your pay. So if you're taking a $500 draw every night and your pay is only $500 and you've got paid already. So you've already got your pay. And so that's not completely. He may have gotten a check for $50. You know, and, and here's the thing, and, and, and I understand that Bob's fired up, but $50 is, I mean, you can do a lot with $50. Just ask our friends over at Omaha Steaks. I mean, are you looking to find the perfect gift for Father's Day? Because Omaha Steaks has a deal right now for Father's Day. That's only $49.99. I bet old Bob Holly wished he knew about that back then. You see, Omaha Steaks delivers hand-trimmed, flash-frozen, and vacuum-sealed meats directly to your door 
and it's made sure to be fresh because it's in an Omaha Steaks cooler. Now, that technology just sort of blows me away, Bruce, because you're getting meat through the mail. And I was a little skeptical the first time I did this, but my family absolutely loves Omaha Steaks, and they know whenever that cooler shows up, we're meeting good that weekend. I mean, don't you agree? Uh, absolutely, because I got my Father's Day package last week and you can get yours by going to omahasteaks.com slash wrestle now type that into the search bar it's going to take you right to this deal because man it is the best we had a bunch of people over so we had steaks we had fillets sirloins we had pork chops we had hamburgers we had hot dogs and as great as the steaks were, as great as everything was. Wait, can I still get addition, I know what you're going to pitch right here because it's it's what everybody at my house liked the best. Oh, my God. The, the caramel apple tart? No, no, my family liked the meatballs. I'm not a meatball guy, and I was wearing out the, the grilling stuff. But, man, they love the meatballs. You're more in the caramel apple tartlet business. Whew. Okay, well, yes, I am because it was I, – I, yeah, I did. I ate three of them before anybody else could get to them. They've also got like a special seasoning that's awesome. Uh, they've got four chicken fried steaks. They've even got a pound of steakhouse fries. Uh, but maybe best of all, they throw in an extra four burgers, all because you use that promo code WRESTLE. Let's run through that one more time. You'll get two filet mignons, two sirloins, four chicken fried steaks, two boneless pork chops, four all-beef Omaha steak burgers, four jumbo franks, 12 ounces of all-beef meatballs, one pound of steakhouse fries, four caramel apple tartlets, one Omaha steak seasoning packet, and four more Omaha steaks burgers, all for free, included in this one-time limited-only package for $49.99. Just go to omahasteaks.com and type in the word wrestle in the search bar. That's omahasteaks.com. Type in wrestle in the search bar, and then boom, just add that Father's Day package to your cart. It's going to be there in plenty of time. But it's only $49. Bob Holly could have afforded this whether he was working for Vince McMahon or Jerry Jarrett. Uh, it would have made it would have fed him for uh, eight weeks, Jarrett. I'm just saying. I mean, the, the $49? What a deal. I thought, well, when I looked at it, I thought that it was going to be $499.99. It's only $49.99, folks. It is through the charts, off the charts, and through the roof. Oh, and, and, the flo- and the prices are through the floor. Yes. And you're going to get more <laughs> at omahasteaks.com. Promo code Slash Russell. Russell. Hey, we didn't do any impressions on that. Are you, uh, what would Macho Man say about this deal? Freak out, freak out. It's Elvis Saint. Oh, yeah. Just go on over to omahasteaks.com slash Russell. forty nine ninety nine. Uh-huh. Freak out, freak out. Oh, yeah. Dig it. King of the Ring qualifying match goes down on April 22nd or April 26th, rather. Bigelow beats Plug. And then he's working with Kwong or Quang, as Quang. I like to say. Why not Kwong? It's because it's Quang. You don't look, man. I You don't speak Chinese. You ain't fluent in Chinese like I am. It's wait, Quang. Wait, are you saying that he was a Chinese character? Yes, Quang was Chinese. Okay. He's from Shanghai, China. Okay. I had no idea. Via Puerto Rico. Meltzer reported in the May 30th Observer, Bob Holly is taking his gimmick seriously. He's been on the track four times this year at the Mobile International Speedway when he's not wrestling, and he's been black flagged, <laughs> a.k.a. disqualified, all four times. 
on April or May 14th, he was black flagged for jumping the starting gun. He drove around the track and tried to climb the fence to attack the flag man. How great is this? Bob had a temper. Yes. And, and Bob had been black flagged and, and Bob had gotten in some trouble for, you know, guy bumped him during the race. So Bob pulled over and got out of the, got out of his car and pulled the guy out of his car and, and, uh, proceeded to whoop his ass. But, uh, yeah, Bob had, Bob had a temper. It was something we had to curtail a little bit to get him out there on that NASCAR circuit. Oh, wait, so you're saying that he wasn't working there. He wasn't trying to work a gimmick. This was him in real life. Just, no, oh, this was him in real life. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he writes in his book that after about six months, he had to just stop biting his tongue and take it to Vince and talk about his name. He was really seriously upset with Thurman plug. He didn't feel like anybody was ever going to take him seriously. So he doesn't want to seem ungrateful and he wants to approach it the right way. And allegedly he does a pretty good job because Vince agrees and he becomes Bob spark plug Holly. He still has the race car driver gimmick and that gives him an identity. So that's fine with him. But he wanted to change the name. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, uh, he was. Oh uh, God, Bob hated the Thurman thing. He hated the STP thing. Um, truth be told, he really hated the the Sparky thing. <laughs> so, told him, man, just go tell Vince how you feel. Just lay it on the line to him and, and let him know that that you're uncomfortable with it and you're not feeling this, and, and see what he says. And Vince was like, okay, cool, man. You'll be Bob spark plug Holly. Long as it kept the, the race car gimmick stuff in there for Vince, he let him do it. He works a lot of people that are pretty interesting towards the second half of 94 guys like under faker, Louis Spicoli, Richie, rich, Abe knuckleball Schwartz, King Kong Bundy, IRS. Well done. Even Chris Canyon. It's written in the December 12th observer that Bob Holly drove a WWF sponsored race car in a snowball derby. Talk to us about this WWF race car, because I think it's something we don't talk about enough here on the show. Vince, Vince had a, an idea to be in the, uh, was it the, is the Bush series below NASCAR, w whatever there were, there's several series of NASCAR races and Vince's idea, we would break Bob in to wherever he could make it. Uh, first and kind of do an entry level race car deal. So Vince agreed to get a race car, buy a race car, get Bob, you know, whatever training that he may need in addition to what he's already done and sponsor a race car and get Bob out there with the WWE logo on a car and hopefully get him to maybe win a race or at least get noticed and get people talking about this two sport athlete, the race car driver and the wrestler. So that was, that was the whole idea behind it. Let's talk a little bit about his first year here in the company, because he says, you know, 94, it really had no highlights for him. He was in the Royal rumble, but he wasn't in WrestleMania and he was essentially an enhancement guy and he was going to do all he could in 95 to sort of level up. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. How would you rate his first year average below average? I think it was average, but you know, we weren't really looking for a lot out of Bob other than hopefully being able to develop the race car gimmick and, and be able to get him in the NASCAR circuit as a race car driver. So that's what we were hoping on that side, on the wrestling side, we were hoping that that other would elevate him on the wrestling side. 
The one, two, three kid and Bob Holly win the tag titles at the Royal rumble in 1995 in the tag title tournament finale over Bam Bam Bigelow and Tatanka. So he's a tag team champion for a day. The very next day, the smoking guns beat him. What's the point of that? Just to create a title change on raw that you guys can sort of focus on and showcase. Well, more than anything, it was probably to do the whole Bam Bam Bigelow getting beaten by an underdog team. And the way that Bob Holly and 123 Kid were positioned leading up to the Royal Rumble was this team that was just put together that no one thought they had a chance in hell to actually win. And then you get to the Royal Rumble where Bam Bam gets beat by the 123 Kid. He's embarrassed after the match. And Lawrence Taylor's on the outside laughing at Bam Bam. So it was a way to get that match on uh, the Royal Rumble for Bam Bam. And there was never really any intention of, of a long-term issue with 123 Kid and Bob Holly because at that time, Vince really wanted to go with the smoking guns. He does write that he was sort of hopeful that he was going to be able to do something with a big guy like Bam Bam. But of course he finds out before the match that that's not the case. They're, they're aiming for this Lawrence Taylor situation. And he says when they're laying out the match that Sean Waltman actually suggested to Pat Patterson, I get to win a lot. So why don't we give Bob the win on this one? Thinking it would help elevate him just being a good guy. And he wrote for whatever reason, Pat insisted that Sean get the win. You read anything into that? That was the story. And, and the story was he wanted the one, two, three kid to, to do it. And it was an upset. It was just how we had it written. That's what we wanted. There, there wasn't anything into it. That's it w- just how we had it written. Just what a, we little, saw. a little guy pinning a big guy. Yes. I got you. Um, he has an interesting night the next night because they're taping three episodes of raw. This is of course where they're going to drop the tag titles, but he says that He doesn't know exactly what happens here. Billy jumps towards him and hits him with an elbow as Bart drops him for a move called the sidewinder. And he somehow smashes his head on the canvas and knocks himself out. And when he comes to, he has no idea where he is. It's his first wrestling concussion that he was able to walk to the back, but he was really confused. And once he got back there, he couldn't remember where he put his stuff. He didn't know to go left or right. And he just sort of stood there. And somebody came over to him and tried to help him, but he said he didn't know where the locker room was and everybody thought he was kidding, but he legitimately had no idea. And Pat Patterson comes over to check on him to see if he's all right. And he says, are you okay to do your rematch in a half hour? And he says he couldn't tell him. No, he just didn't say no. So he finds a way to do it. You just don't complain. You just go do it. How different is wrestling now, man, when, when you've got such a serious, you know, head injury like that and you're just right back out there a half hour later. Well, I think that people are a lot more observant of the signs of concussion. And if you don't know, you don't know. So for Bob to come back, unless he's complaining and for us not to know that he's disoriented, doesn't know where the hell he is. If you don't know, there's nothing you can do about it. I think that right now they have doctors that are watching the match, they're looking for signs of that looked like a pretty bad blow. I'm going to go talk to him right afterwards. Someone that actually has experience and can tell 
whether or not someone's disoriented or if they actually maybe suffered a concussion, possible concussion, what have you. We didn't have that then. You know, it was it was a different time. And for us, you know, you go up, hey, are you okay? Guy says, yeah, I'm good, man. I'm fine. Um, You're just asking after a match, you always ask, hey, everybody okay? Everybody fine? Yep, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, You move on to the next thing. Now they're a lot more observant. They're a lot more cautious. And even if the guy tells you, yes, I'm fine now, I don't know that with the stop gaps and everything they have in place now that that would have been able to happen. And guys aren't working two and three times in one night anymore, really. Do you think, um, you know, he should have seen a doctor? I think if he had, had, yeah, if he had had something wrong with him and he was that out of it, definitely. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you won't have to see a doctor to enjoy the fine products from four hymns. And let me tell you why you need to do that. Because not only can four hymns help you with stuff like hair loss and skincare, but even sexual wellness. And Bruce, you know, a thing or two about sexual wellness. Do you not? What the hell are you trying to say? Of course I know about sexual wellness for men. And I also know that four hymns is the place to go because man, they got medical grade solutions. They have real doctors. All right and well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions that can help you keep your hair. Forhims.com offers men an easier, more affordable access to the prescriptions, products, and medical advice that they need. Best thing I like, man, there's no waiting room. There's no awkward doctor visits. You save hours by going to forhims.com, answer a few quick questions, then a doctor will review and prescribe you, and everything will be sent directly to your door. And I guess we should remind everybody that these are not herbal supplements. This is stuff that has been backed by science. We're talking about prescription solutions, man. And you can order now. I mean, do what Bruce did. He had a real problem with his gimmick, but now he's, he's, he's back in action and our listeners can get their sexual wellness on right now. You get a trial month of everything you need to keep your hair and uh, brother loves hair has never looked better. It's just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See the website for details and get your gimmick going. This would cost you hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or pharmacy, but not right now. All you've got to do is go to fourhims.com slash WWE. Get you some hair, get your gimmick going. It's fourhims.com slash WWE. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com slash WWE. I'm talking to you. You know, your gimmick could use a little help for hymns slash WWE. Well, you know, <laughs> well, how would, uh, how would Jerry describe maybe one of these illnesses or ailments that you might have that for hymns could help you with? Well, you know, sometimes when, when your thing, well, you know, your ding up, well, you know, your ling that just kind of like goes just ding and it won't ling anymore. Well, you know, they can help you out. And it's simple. Just go to forhims.com slash wrestle. No, slash WWE. What the hell am I talking about? Well, you know. You know. I <laughs> think you got so far in the gimmick mode, you went slash wrestle. It's forhims.com slash WWE, folks. Come get That's you. That's because Jarrett would fuck it up. Well, of course you know. he would. Come on. Um, right before WrestleMania. It's reported that one of the plans is for Bob Holly to be racing in a NASCAR Slim Jim series, 19 events. And this is the Vince McMahon, I guess, idea to sort of push WrestleMania. And these events are going to happen from March 18th to November 19th, but that is going to include something the day before WrestleMania 
And that's probably the motivation, right? Get a little cross promotion for WrestleMania the day before. Yeah, we were looking to get as much as we could. NASCAR was really picking up steam and momentum at the time. So we were looking for as much exposure as we could and hoping for Bob to make a name for himself on that series. Let's talk about an interesting dark match I found on March 13th. Bob tagged with the Lundra Blaze, friend of the show Medusa, against Bull Nakano and Hakushi. Bless you. Well, what do you think? Of, I mean, that's sort of way ahead of its time there, is it not? <laughs> well, you know, it was probably a little bit. I think it was right on the money, man. It was Bull Nakano was red hot at the time, and she was probably at that time regarded as the best women woman wrestler in the in the business, and. Deborah right behind that was probably the best American women's wrestler. So I think it was right on, man. It was right on time. Well, it was awesome. You know, those are, I guess what I was trying to say is this is an era where in a couple of years, we're going to see a different type of women's wrestling. And here we've got two legit, badass women's wrestlers with two legit, badass men wrestlers. And that's just, uh, not something that you saw very much of at the time. Yeah, and, and literally, I think, in my opinion, they were the two best women's wrestlers, women wrestlers in the world at that point. So it was it was pretty cool because the, the Bull Nakano Alundra Blaze stuff was great, and Bob and Hakushi. Do you think that Alundra Blaze and Bull Nakano were ahead of their time? I mean, how how badass would they be in today's WWE? I still think that that both Debbie and and Bull would be. They'd probably both be the top Wait, in the business that they you- were today. Are you telling me you call Medusa Debbie? Yeah. Wow. I don't know why. Uh, you know, I well, the funny thing is when she was a Lundra, right? I always called her Medusa. And now I now I call her Debbie just for I don't know why. I'm going to have to tell Tony Shivani that you're trying to uh sweet talk his honey here, calling her Debbie. Well, man, she sent she sent me one of her shirts and it was all sprayed full of perfume and everything and I remember taking it out and my wife was like, what the hell is that? And then, but like my wife and my wife and Deborah knew each other way back in, in this day. So it was all good. On the April 26th action zone tapings, Bob wins the intercontinental title from Jeff Jarrett <laughs> and it ends up, uh, being held up and later in the same tapings, Jarrett wins it back. And he says the company had put a lot of effort into Jeff and he'd been the intercontinental champion a couple times. And they had a match that was going to be for the intercontinental title. And he was told he was going to win and become champion. And that really is the only title besides the world title at the time as a singles belt. And he says the match went well, the finish came off fine. But when he went to, for the win for the cover, Jeff got his foot on the rope to break the pin. The ref didn't see it and counted three. And he was told to get out of the ring quickly, grab the belt and come straight to the back. And as his music was playing, Jeff was kicking up a stink in the ring saying his foot had been on the ropes. So this is a, a sort of a slick way to create a fun little angle. Chat me up about why this worked and you know, why this was a stop and start or so it felt for Holly. You know, it was just storyline driven and it was something to create a little bit of interest in, in them and in the intercontinental championship and see if there was something there, but it was just, it was storyline driven to try and get people interested and think, oh man, that was a fuck up that, you know, think that wasn't supposed to happen and give that moment of disbelief. He gets a win on May 15th over everybody's favorite and a King of the ring qualifying match Mantar. 
And around that same time, Dave Meltzer reports in the observer that ESPN two is doing a story on Bob Holly, really focusing on the two sport gimmick. You guys were sort of desperate for any sort of ESPN or mainstream coverage. So the idea that you've got the car on, on national TV and now here again, some coverage for the gimmick from a legitimate news outlet like ESPN, that's gotta be exactly what Vince was looking for, right? It was. And you know, the, the idea about being on ESPN was it was legitimate, uh, <laughs> you know, sports coverage and they didn't like to cover the WWE. They didn't like covering professional wrestling because they were above all of that. So for them to be able to go out and, and cover this and do a story on one of our guys. Yeah, that was, that was a coup now, you know, at that point in time. Now it's, they do it all the time. On June 5th, he gets to take on a guy who's there wrestling for a tryout. And of course he gets a win because the other fellow's trying out. That fellow's name is Chris Benoit. How close did you guys come to maybe extending an offer to Chris Benoit here? This is 1995. This is before he's with WCW, of course. You know, I think at this time, and I, I remember the match and I remember the tryout very well because it was, there were a lot of guys that were high on Chris Benoit. Chris hadn't really had any national exposure in the States at that point. He was mainly working Japan, but I think that Chris was more interested in still being able to go and tour Japan and keep that gig. And he wanted to do it. And that was something, you know, Vince kind of looked at him as, ah, he's a really good technician, but I don't know that when Chris met with Vince that he felt his personality was over the top enough that he thought he could do anything with him. He liked his work, but beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot there. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the story that comes out here, because there is a story that the AP runs that say that Bob Howard, his real name had signed a wrestling contract and a separate contract as the driver. And he says that McMahon put up 200 grand for the racing team. Tell me about the difference in the contracts. Well, it was just really, it was just an addendum to the contract that Bob would also be racing and that he would be paid for the time off that he was racing. He would be paid another salary and it would be based on, you know, what the winnings were and what have you and where he was on the ranking so that, you know, Bob wasn't giving up one and he was able to do the other and he would still be paid and be under contract for both. That's all it was, but I, Boy, I want to say Vince put a hell of a lot more than 200000 into that damn racing team. I want to say when all was said and done, it was it was close to a half million. Uh, the, let's get to the king of the ring. Uh, Rhodey would pin Bob Holly here in seven minutes and 30 seconds. And he wrote, I wrestled Road Dog and lost to him. Up until that point, he'd only been acknowledged as Jeff Jarrett's Rhodey and not a wrestler. So like Bam Bam and the football player at Mania, it looked like a non-wrestler was beating a wrestler. I didn't appreciate that. How was I supposed to have any credibility if I couldn't beat a roadie? That was when I really started to question the company politics and began to think it didn't matter how good somebody was. Your response? Well, my response to that is we were doing something with Road Dog and we were getting ready to put him into an angle with Jeff Jarrett and it was something new. And he wasn't, you know, people were going to find out that he was much more than a roadie. He was actually a good wrestler as well. So it was the fact that it wasn't Bob Holly involved in that storyline. I can see why Bob would feel that way, but we were doing something with Rhodey and that's why it was made that way. 
At SummerSlam on August 27th in Pittsburgh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley beats Bob Holly with a pedigree, of course. And he writes in his book, quote, Hunter is probably one of the easiest people to work with. No matter what else I might say about him, and we'll get to that later, he is really fucking good, and there's no other way to put it. He knows what he's doing. He knows where to be and when it's time to do certain things. He's not selfish, and he doesn't do things off the cuff. Everything he does makes sense. He's a great storyteller in the ring. Fair assessment? Yeah, I think it is a fair assessment. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Is Pop-Pop, were we talking about Pop-Pop now? No, you were kissing something. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. On Superstars, August 29th, Isaac fucking Yankum beat Bob Holly. And uh, in mid-September, he starts working house shows against Goldust. In Your House 3 does a dark match. Goldust beats him there. And he does get a win on September 26th over AC Connor, a name we haven't talked about, at least under those names. Who else might we know AC Connor as? D-Lo Brown in the house. He's putting AC Connor. Who you know what AC Connor's profession was at the time? Was he an accountant? Yeah, certified public accountant. Do you know that Robbie E had no idea what an accountant was? Robbie E doesn't know who the president is. Is that real? Uh, it is real that I guarantee you, if you were to ask Robbie E on the streets, if, he, if, if the vice president, he could not tell you. Well, there you go. Uh, Bob's putting over Waylon Mercy on house shows through October. He does manage to get a win on In Your House in October. He beats Rad Radford. And then on October 23rd, he's in the number one contender for the Intercontinental Title Battle Royal, and Owen Hart wins it. Coming out of there, he's putting over Bob Backlund on all the house shows through early November. Let's get to Survivor Series 95. He's teaming with Marty Jannetty, Hakushi, and Barry Horowitz. How would you describe that team? Bob Holly, Marty Jannetty, Hakushi, and Barry Horowitz. Goddamn, main eventers anywhere in the world, any given time. Their opponents are Rad Radford, Skip, One Two Three Kid, and Doctor Tom Pritchard. Fucking a! I, how was this not on top in the garden? Yeah, Bob eliminated your brother, and then was eliminated. Oh, that's bullshit. Was eliminated. So by damn, Skip. that's a damn politics again. <laughs> Thank you for that. The next night on Raw, he loses to the British Bulldog, and then he spends the rest of 95 putting over Goldust on house shows. Not the best 1995. Let's keep cruising here. Uh, Bob had some interesting things to say about Sid. He wrote in his book, Sid wasn't a good worker, but he cut a great promo and had a great look. He was over huge, so of course Vince was going to use him to draw. I guess Kevin and Sean didn't like the thought of someone else getting a piece of the action, so they stepped in. Nash especially felt threatened by him because they were both big men, but Sid was over and Nash just hadn't worked out as champion. So they butted heads a lot when they were going over matches. Sid was set in his ways and wasn't a back to back down to anybody. He wouldn't let upper management or the other boys push him around or abuse his character. After the click pushed Sid out of the main event picture, they kept sticking it to him, I guess, to prove a point or something in January of 96, they pushed it too far. He and I were traveling to the arena together and Sid came up to me after a while after we'd arrived and said, how do you want to beat me? And I replied, you're fucking with me, right? And he says, no, we're wrestling tonight and they want you over. I asked him if he was mad at me. Fuck. No, it's them. They're fucking with me. Fuck this place. I'm done after tonight. I wasn't offended that he was mad at having to lose to me. It was an insult to him. Here you have me who loses to everyone all the time. And then you have Sid, this big monster. And he had to put me over clean. I was very uncomfortable. He was pitching an absolute fit backstage and I was caught in the middle of it. 
We did the match and it was fine. But the whole time we were out there, I felt so bad for him. It wasn't right. Kevin and Sean were doing this to him, but what could I do? I did what I was told or I found another job. It was as simple as that. Afterwards, Sid came backstage and was selling that he got injured. He said he hurt his neck, but he was lying about that. Since we'd been traveling together, I knew the truth. He just didn't want to deal with all the politics anymore. So he left long before WrestleMania that year, Sid was gone. What do you remember about this? I can't wait for us to cover a Sid episode, but I don't know when we will. So I wanted to cover this here. Do you blame this on Sean and Kevin, or is this just sour grapes and Sid was difficult to do business with? I, I'm going to chalk it up to sour grapes and Sid was difficult to do business with. So, I mean that it just was, there were times, you know, if you were to listen to Sid and talk to Sid, Sid would tell you that he was a wrestling genius and that a lot of times there was no talking to Sid without doubt. Sid was a huge draw and Sid had, you know, all the tools. And if you were to build your prototypical wrestler, what they would look like, man, I'd build Sid justice or Sid vicious. And that's the guy I would want him to look like because Sid looked great. But, you know, I think when things didn't go Sid's way, he could be difficult to deal with as a lot of guys can be. And I think it was just, it was just time. And that's how it worked out. I think it was Vince, you know, saying, okay, um, Sid, you don't want to be here. Then we're going to have Bob Holly go over tonight. And I think Vince probably knew exactly what was going to happen. And he wanted to see where, where everybody's, you know, where everybody stood. Let's get to Royal rumble. 96. He comes in at number five, doesn't eliminate anyone. And then is eliminated by the ringmaster. He loses on the February 19th raw to diesel. And really in 96 and 97, he's making very few TV appearances and really working a limited house show schedule. Bob would write, I carried on in the role of the guy who went out there and lost to everybody and made them all look good, but it sure didn't do a damn thing for me. I wasn't even making decent money and they were using me less and less. In 94, I had over 200 matches. In 95, I had around 150. By 96, they were working me less than 100 dates. And in 97, I only had 50 matches. I'm sure that traveling with Sid was one of the reasons I got fewer matches in 96. But in 97, Sid was the only reason I got any matches. He went to Pat Patterson and said, if you don't get Bob back on the road, I'll be quitting. He said that I kept him sane. I helped him drive him when he was hurt, that sort of thing. And that was why they got me back on the road and working shows just because Sid had a lot of stroke and they really never used him properly. They could have made a lot of money with him if they'd have figured out how, what do you remember about him sort of being starved out? I mean, he's not being booked. It wasn't being starved out. And, and that's, you know, when guys use that kind of term, it, Bob was being used to get guys over. It was the curse of the good worker. Yeah. And the curse of the good worker is a guy that can go in the ring and have great matches with anybody on the card and make them look great and put them over, make them look like a million bucks. And unfortunately what happens is you use them and they become stuck in that role. And Owen Hart got stuck in that role for a while. Bob Holly got stuck in that role for a while. They were probably too good for their own, you know, for their own good. Unfortunately, because they made everybody else look good. And then you get to the point where it's like, damn, I want to do something with them, but shit, you, you have to give them some time off to be able to bring them back and kind of get the stink out of everybody's mouth. And, and that's the difficulty in that. 
was making such good money working for the WWF so infrequently that when his friend comes to pick him up and says, Hey, jump in the truck, we're getting you a welding test. He goes and takes it and accepts a job on a construction crew as a welder and is doing that full time and then racing on the weekends. And he's pretty content, but he is definitely lost in the shuffle. He says, after several months of this, this jack off named Bruce Pritchard from the WWF calls him. And he did says, not call me a jack off. Oh, creative license, I guess. And he says he needs you to come. That hurts out. inside where it counts. <laughs> it hurts your right feet. over here, right over here. Uh, he says he needs <laughs> you to come back to work full time. This is exactly what he wrote in his book. I told him I didn't think I wanted to come back. That I had a good job, was enjoying racing again, was home every night. He kept at me until I said that if they wanted me back, they were going to have to make sure I was at least making what I was making at my welding job. I left it with him, but I wasn't concerned either way. Like I said, I was content with what I was doing at that point. Bruce called me back later and said they would match my salary. And they wanted me to bring me up to Connecticut to do some training, knock off the rust and get me back into ring shape. They started paying me right away, but didn't get me up to Connecticut for another four weeks. So I ended up making two grand a week for a while. That was pretty nice, but it's definitely not the sort of money that most people think a wrestler with the WWF makes. Do you remember that phone call? And why was the call made? I do because I, I felt that Bob was somebody that we could use. And I thought that we could do something with him. I wanted him on the roster and I wanted him to come back and be a part of the mix. So I knew he was working and he had a sour taste in his mouth and I wanted to give him the opportunity to know that we were interested. We wanted to do something with him and, and kind of get him back in the mix. It's sort of an interesting story here because I think, and this happens a lot, even today, you, if you go backstage to a raw or SmackDown, you see a lot of guys who aren't really on the show, but they're still booked to be there. And that was his existence here from August of 97 through March of 98. He wrote, even though I was under contract, the WWF didn't use me in a single match from the middle of August, 1997 through March of 1998. They would call me up at the last minute on a Saturday or Sunday and tell me they needed me at the next day's pay-per-view or at raw. So I'd get on a plane, go to the arena and sit backstage and watch the show. I still got paid for it, but I never got to work. They just wanted me backstage in case someone didn't turn up or I was needed for a dark match or something. I just hated sitting around and not working. Talk me through the, the strategy here and the frustrations that you clearly have to deal with from a talent who's in this spot. Well, obviously you need guys for backup in case someone gets hurt or someone has travel issues or what have you. In addition, sometimes having a guy there every week and you see him, you get to thinking, okay, what can we do with them out of sight, out of mind? If they're not there, you're not thinking about them and you're not thinking about something else that they could do. If they are there, keep passing by them all the time. It's like, what the hell are we doing with him? You know, it can work in their favor and also against them sometimes. But, you know, it, it's the flip side of that is not being there at all and not making any money and not being in the mix and not being thought of at all. That's just, you know, that's the cost of doing business sometimes. And Bob was one of those guys that we continually were like, what about Bob? You know, what can we do with Bob? So he was there and he was used if we needed him. February of 98, Bob gets a new gimmick. And I guess that's really an old gimmick. He's teamed with another guy who's sort of in that same spot, Bart Gunn. Ugh. And they're repackaged as the new Midnight Express, Bombastic Bart and Bodacious or Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart. I mean, I guess they're interchangeable. Who gives a shit? Chat me up about the new Midnight Express and how this was pitched. What did it sound like? 
Goddamn, Bindog Express, greatest tag team ever. And Rock and Roll Express, second greatest tag team ever. Which I would agree that the Midnight Express is probably one of the greatest tag teams of all time, and, and along with the Rock and Roll Express. Definitely in the top five. We were doing an angle with the NWA and trying to create some excitement and create our own brand of invasion, if you will, with the NWA and Jim Cornette representing the NWA with Dan Severin, bringing in the Rock and Roll Express, recreating the Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express rivalry that set Mid-South on fire back in, you know, 10 years prior. Um, I would have to say it would be an ill, it was an ill-conceived idea. You think? I think. He, he says the entire management of us consisted of them giving us some videotapes of the original Midnight Express and saying, be like Dennis and Bobby. Nobody can. That's true. That's very true. But we thought, you know, because Jim Cornette was always very high on Bob Holly and, and would always compare Bob Holly to Bobby Eaton. So we thought Bob Holly's, man, that's a natural right there. And, and with Cornette there that, Hey, it didn't work. It was a shitty idea. I'll take, I'll take, I'll take full credit for it. He says it wasn't that, all mine, but I backed it. He says that Bobby and Dennis formed one of the greatest tag teams of all time and throwing him and Bart together, hoping they'd immediately develop what took Bobby and Dennis years to get to was just plain stupid. Yeah. They had Cornette as the manager and they had new tights with me on them and they had these new silly names, but it just wasn't going to work. Um, Meltzer wrote this of their debut, which happened on the March 16th raw. Holly looked absolutely ridiculous, almost like someone who was doing a bad spoof with bleached hair to look like circa 1985, Bobby Eaton. Of course they jumped the rock and roll express so we can restart that feud. Actually, Holly has some talent. I'm not sure what to say about gun other than he still has no charisma, but this would be like putting a bunch of J Brown actors that couldn't even hang on a WPN show and call the new show cheers and have them do the same format and stories. But in its own way, it is entertaining. What do you think? Okay. Well, first of all, I, I take exception to, I don't think it took, it did not take Bobby and Dennis years to click as a tag team. They were put together as a hodgepodge tag team as a midnight express in mid South. They clicked. They did click immediately. They had excellent chemistry and it, you know, they're one in a million, man. They were, they were two guys that were put together add in Jim Cornette to that threesome, man, they, they were hard to beat. So when you look at the combination, Bobby Eaton could have, could not cut a promo if his life depended on it. Dennis couldn't cut a promo as, if his life depended on it. it was very bland, um, promo skills wise. Both guys were great workers in their own right. Take Bob Holly and even even your friend Meltzer says Bob Holly was a good worker and, and looked good in the ring and definitely you know fit Bart Gunn, not the most charismatic and we were he was a good hand in the ring and he was a good tag team guy having worked with Billy before that so we thought putting the two together unfortunately you, you can't recreate something like the Midnight Express and. You know, especially God, Dennis and Bobby and Jim, that was just lightning in a bottle that those guys had instant chemistry. They could communicate without speaking. And, um, sometimes it's better off to just leave 
Leave that kind of shit alone. Because you're always going to be compared to the original. Yeah. I mean, I get that. And it's obvious to him that they're really just, uh, here to be an underneath tag team, take up some airtime, have some filler matches. And he says, as usual, time was passing. I wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't making any real money. He does get a shot at WrestleMania 14. They're in that tag team battle Royal. Of course, LOD 2000 eliminates them, but they're the last team out, I guess. You know, he keeps asserting that he's not making any money. And I know you're not going to talk about money sort of freestyle. What do you think he was earning here in 1998? He keeps saying no money. And I know you don't like to talk about it, but realistically, I mean, he is sort of saying, oh, I made $50 for this. And I made $50 for that. Give us a frame. Well, I'm sure he's making decent, you know, three figures. I mean, three figures. <laughs> he's making different, de- decent three figures. Hell, he's making hundreds of dollars. Um, I'd say he's probably in six figures, uh, you know, over a hundred thousand. Okay. Um, they work a match here at unforgiven 98 it's midnight express and rock and roll express. We've covered this not too long ago. One star. Have you blocked this one out? Try wow. to. Yeah. I mean, just it, not good. No, it wasn't good. And, and like I said, you know, sometimes when you, you try to recreate the past and people are always going to compare to the originals and when you had the best in in those four guys, I'm you know, speaking of the original Rock and Roll Express and original Midnight. Just go back and remember the good times and leave it there. Let's talk about uh, the, the King of the Ring 1998. Um, this is a big show, and we're going to be covering it later this month. So we get lots of questions about it. No, set your calendars, folks. It's coming. In this show, we don't just have the Mick Foley spectacle. We've got another match with Midnight Express, but this time it's with the New Age Outlaws. The NWA gimmick is essentially gone here. They're not even referring to Dan Severin as the NWA heavyweight champion, and it only gets star and a half. Obviously, the New Age Outlaws are catching fire here. Maybe not so much for the new Midnight Express. What do you remember about this? No, it was it was a dud. And we really thought, you know, the other thing that we kind of thought trying to salvage a little bit, especially here, was thinking we had chemistry with Billy and Bart and hoping that that would would click. However, against each other, that chemistry wasn't there. So, yeah, some things you just want to block out. All right. Here's something you've been waiting for. Brawl for all. We've covered this in long form in the archives, but they actually start this on July 14th of that year and gun versus Holly is the match they're going to start with here. And well, I'll let you take it from here. Okay. Contrary to popular belief as, as we talked about in the brawl for all episode, we put everybody's name in a, in a bag, Savio Vega picked the names out at random. That's how we made the brackets. So it was. You got two tag team partners facing each other in the first round. And it was went down as Bob Holly, you know, in hindsight being 2020, Bob Holly was the only guy that Bart Gunn didn't knock out. And they went three rounds, beat the crap out of each other. And, you know, Bart definitely beat Bob points and everything else in that in that fight. But 
man, they beat the living shit out of each other. And the record will show, man, Bob Holly's the only guy that Bart did not knock out. He says that they put together a group of 16 mid cart wrestlers who they figured were the tough guys and they put Bart in the tournament, but I wasn't included. They didn't think old Sparky plug could fight. And that pissed me off. Obviously they didn't know that old Sparky was a tough motherfucker. They needed a replacement. And Bradshaw told Bruce Pritchard, who was one of the guys in charge of organizing the whole thing. Bob may not look like anything much, but he'll surprise you. Bob gave me a call and asked if I wanted in. Hell yeah. I don't know why he didn't ask me in the first place. I was pretty excited because I figured I could actually make some decent money and I'd have a chance to show how tough I actually was. Do you remember the call? And was he replacing Ken Shamrock here or who was he replacing? Do you remember? I believe he, he was either uh, replacing uh, Shamrock or Dan Severn, who yeah. were originally, you know, in that group of guys that we had picked for this thing. Um, but I didn't think about, I really and truly didn't. Um, I had no idea the reputation of, of, of Bob being a tough guy. I knew he was a stand-up guy, but, and again, there were a lot of guys that had reputations for being tough guys who wanted nothing to do with it and what have you. But when I called him, he was excited about it. He wanted the opportunity to get in there and, and fight. Yeah, I'll fight. Hell yeah, I got an idea. How about I kick their ass? So it worked for Bob, but, uh, unfortunately he drew Bart in the first round. Let's, uh, let's talk about that match because he says that they actually had a chance to talk before the fight because they're riding together. And he says, this is a great line. I knew Bart used to do tough fan contests. So I had my work cut out for me, even though he'd never wrestled a bear <laughs> six, five and two sixty. Uh, I'm only six, one and two twenty. That's a heck of a size difference, but I didn't back down from anybody. Uh, we went out there and laid into each other. It was brutal. He hit me so fucking hard. I ended up on the other side of the ring. I had no idea how I got there, but he didn't knock me out. We went all three rounds and the judges gave the points to Bart. It turned out to be one of the best fights in the tournament. And we were still friends afterwards. We cleaned our clocks pretty good, but neither of us was mad at the other. He told me I hit you with some good shots. It shocked me. You didn't go down. I had a black eye for a solid week after that fight, but he never knocked me out. I got my five grand and I opened a lot of eyes in the back by showing that I was tougher than anybody had given me credit for. Is that fair to say? It sure as hell was, ma'am. And they, when he says they beat the shit out of each other, they beat the shit out of each other and sat in there and slugged it out. And as, as you see later on, Throughout that tournament, man, nobody else was able to stand up to Bart and Bob made it three rounds. Yeah. You guys were so impressed with him after this, that, uh, he's back to floundering in the mid card status. Uh, the team is broken up of course. And on the November 9th raw, Al snow introduces Bob Holly and Scorpio as job squad members. And they beat too much. We haven't talked about job squad a lot here on the show. Why was Bob Holly the right guy for this group? I think, you know, this was during a time Russo was doing a lot of the writing with Vince. Al Snow had come in. The Job Squad shirts and the Job Squad merchandise was something that was taking off for Al Snow. And it was a little business that Al had selling these T-shirts. And, man, it was kind of like the NWO shirts. People 
liked the Job Squad shirts. They had a little baby flipping off, you know, two double middle fingers and stuff on them. They were great shirts. Vince didn't truly understand. Vince McMahon didn't truly understand the Job Squad, but Russo uh, liked it. Russo was a big fan of Al Snow, and Al, you know, had convinced everybody that he could make this thing work. We weren't doing anything with Bob Holly, so make him a part of it. And it was during this time, it was more a case of everybody having a story. And if you don't have a story, we're going to throw you into something. And Bob got put into the job squad. Let's talk a little bit about the job squad. He wrote in his book, the gimmick was a little confusing. We were meant to be this group of losers who did the job for everybody, but then we started to win matches and get over. After a month or so, Russo told us we were going to have a big night on raw in November. And sure enough, we were all over the show. We went out and helped mankind win his match against the big boss man and shamrock who were a part of Vince McMahon's main event heel group. Of course, Gilberg won the, uh, light heavyweight title and he and Scorpio, Bob Holly beat the new age outlaws who were the tag champs, but that's non-title, but still it looks like they're going to get a chance to do something. But Bob will continue, but just like everything else, it went absolutely nowhere. It was like nothing had ever happened to say. I was frustrated is an understatement as 98 turned into 1999. They stopped using Gilberg Scorpio got released and things were looking bad for me. And Al, why do you think the job squad fizzled so quickly? Did Vince not get it, bro? You, you, you gotta come up with something new. I think that there were so many things that were just put together at the last minute while they were sitting there on a Thursday or Friday and looking at another segment. How about this without any thought to what they were going to do for the next six weeks. And sometimes they would do something this week and have no follow-up or no idea what the hell to do with it the next week. And I think the job squad was a victim of that kind of thinking. Let's, uh, let's talk about what he's doing here at the end of the year. You know, he sort of glossed over it, but he works a dark match or not a dark match, but like the Sunday night heat show for survivor series, 1998, it's uh, Scorpio and Holly taking on animal and draws Scorpio and Holly get the win. He takes on the brood at the rock bottom pay-per-view. The brood gets the win there. And then we, we sort of cruise into the new year, Royal rumble, 1999, where we see Bob Holly and Scorpio take on Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher. Um, it's really just mainly set up to show the acolytes attacking the job squad, which sets up the undertaker and Paul bear who come to the ring for an interview. And at this point, it's probably natural for Bob to feel like the fucking writings on the wall. Is it not? I think that, you know, he was feeling, yeah, I think he was feeling kind of woe is me. And there's, there was nothing happening. There was no direction. Um, Bob wasn't alone in feeling that way. There wasn't a lot of direction for everybody. And people were being used, but when they would ask, okay, what's next? What's my future? Where are we going from here? There was no answer. Well, the answer is the hardcore title. Uh, Al has decided to, uh, sort of venture off into ECW in 1997, as we all remember, and did very, very well there. So now they're going to have this hardcore title be a featured part of their promotion. And in 1999, Al is finds himself working with Bob Holly at St. Valentine's day massacre for the vacant hardcore championship. And he wrote, he being Bob, I didn't think anything other than I was there to be a body to put Al over, 
but I was happy to hear we would be on a pay-per-view and hopefully get a decent payday out of it. But I didn't know at the time, but this was really the birth of hardcore Holly. And it is sort of fun to look back and realize that this might've been the moment that everything sort of turned. The title of course is vacant because road dog is injured. And that's really just to cover up for his trip to rehab. And these guys are going to brawl everywhere. I mean, inside, outside, all over the place. It's a pretty fun match. I enjoyed it. Meltzer did not. He says the guys worked hard, but it was a really cartoonish brawl and gives it just one star. If you'd like to see the birth of hardcore Holly, it's St. Valentine's day massacre, February 14th, 1999. What do you remember about that match? Well, I remember Jerry Briscoe, I believe was the agent of it. And it was designed to go all over the building outside of the building and to try and build that hardcore division as anything can happen at any time and anywhere. So for me, fuck Meltzer. I thought that the match was entertaining as hell because it was different. It was a completely different match than everything else that you were seeing on the card. And those guys, I mean, they busted their ass. They went out into the river and it was freezing. And when I say freezing, it was literally freezing outside and they're working out there and taking a bump into the water and still fighting through all that shit. Um, I think it's extremely memorable. People still talk about it to this day. Yeah. I mean, and it is the birth of, um, hardcore Holly, man. He keeps rolling here. February 16th. They do tapings where Bob would beat Bart Gunn in a hardcore match. And then he's teaming with Al snow to take on the new age outlaws on March 2nd. Uh, they continue to, uh, have hardcore matches with Billy Gunn on the March 16th show. And that's when Billy Gunn actually wins the hardcore title. Why was the decision made to sort of take it off of Bob? Is this just, let's give it a fresh paint of coat. I mean, obviously you guys are flipping this belt around a lot, but if this is really his new gimmick, hardcore Holly, why not let him ride it through WrestleMania? Well, it may have been his gimmick to, to be hardcore Holly and to work that style, but it wasn't his gimmick to be the champion. It had the belt, but this was during a time that everything was hot potato. That, right. In my opinion, I think that we really diminished a lot of the championships because they changed hands so damn much. So if it's, you know, if it's giving out, I'm hardcore Holly and I beat everybody, man, that's not, you know, that's not going to do anything. And it was hot potato time with that championship. Bob Holly regains the hardcore title at WrestleMania huh. 15. Uh, he is a, a three-way champion here or wins a three-way match here over Billy Gunn and Al Snow. We've covered this in our archives, star and a quarter. Uh, the next night on Raw, he's taking on Steve Williams in a hardcore match. Chat me up, Steve Williams in the WWE. I don't know when we're going to talk about him again. Any good memories or stories there? Oh, my God. You know, I think that my my favorite Dr. Death, Steve Williams story was one night in Houston, Texas, after an event at the Sam Houston Coliseum, Ted DiBiase and, and Doc and I went to a local nightclub by the name of Cooters uh, out off Edgebrook and I-45 in Houston. And we had had quite a bit to drink that night. We had been partying pretty good. And at the end, of, you know, there's always that one asshole that you can pretty much pick out from the moment you walk into a bar that's going to be that asshole that's going to want to test somebody or, or pop his mouth off and just be an asshole. 
And at the end of the night, sure enough, man, there was that one asshole that popped off to Doc and Doc was ready to kill him. And Ted DiBiase and I are both trying to restrain Dr. Death from ripping some guy's head off. Well, the guy goes and gets in his truck and the guy comes barreling at us in his truck. And Teddy, (laughs) Teddy and I like got the hell out of the way. Doc stood his ground in the parking lot and this son of a bitch slammed on his brakes and Doc is pounding on the pounding on the truck. Come on, come on, run me over, motherfucker. Come on, run me over. Come on. And this son of a bitch, he's in a truck and is rolling up his window as Doc is making his way around and put the car in reverse. And as soon as Doc came around that front damn corner of the car and coming around to the, that guy just took off like crazy. But he has opportunity to run him over, and Doc literally stopped that truck mid-track. Smartest move that guy ever did was stopping that truck because I think Doc would have put some, just done some damage to that truck. Doc was a legit, Badass, shoot, badass motherfucker. April 25th, Backlash. Al Snow wins the hardcore title from Bob Holly. 12 minutes and, uh, I'm sorry, 15 minutes and 27 seconds. And, um, they're using everything here, man. I mean, there's blood, but there's everything else. Two and a quarter stars. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before. Where do you land on hardcore matches? Hate them. Uh, the, uh, you know, I hate the gimmick things, man, because when you use all these gimmicks and stuff, where is there to go after that? It, it's just when guys are no selling everything from the beginning. And then the next match is a wrestling match and guys are, are selling a hip toss and guys are selling a punch. But the match before that, they're no selling, getting hit over the head with a stop sign. I'm just not a fan of it. Well, there's a lot of it going on here on May 11th. Uh, they would do tapings where road dog would beat Holly in 57 seconds, uh, when snow distracted Holly and then Holly attacked snow and destroys a deer head, which was called Pierre. Yes. And they made a lot of inside jokes about the deer head only having one eye, but you know what? It was a miracle that deer could catch a ball. It's a miracle. Listen to you. And over the edge on May 23rd, snow would beat Holly to regain the hardcore title. And then on June 6th, we have Kane and X-Pac taking on big show and Holly and Holly is refusing to tag show. So show choke slams him and walks off, leaving him to be pinned. And that sets up King of the ring 99, uh, in the first King of the ring match, X-Pac would beat Bob Holly there. It gets a dud rating. And during the next match, Kane is working with big show and Holly comes down with a chair after show. Kane takes the chair and choke slams Holly. Why is Holly in this spot all of a sudden with Big Show? Trying to come up, you know, little different things for Bob Holly. You know, Bob Holly, if you were to talk to him, you would think that he was, well, the Big Show. You would think that he was seven foot tall and could beat everybody on the face of God's green earth. That's the attitude. That's the personality of Robert Howard, Bob Holly, whoever the hell you want to say, you know, who he is. So the idea was, is that he's going to stand up to this giant. He saw himself as big, if not bigger than the big show. Just another storyline, you know, give him a little more personality. Giant killer. And he becomes a super heavyweight, or at least that's what he's proclaiming himself to be. And, uh, he's jaw jacking and talking a bunch of crap with him. And he says he's getting paid well and people are respecting him and his work. And he feels like he's going somewhere. 
So they finally let him start cutting promos and he didn't feel like he had really ever had an opportunity to do that before he developed a cocky, no bullshit. Don't back down characters. He would describe it. What'd you think of Holly finally getting a chance to cut a promo? Well, I enjoyed it because Bob cut promos in the back all the time anyway. So it was an extension of what he was already doing. We just put it on the air then. So it was nice to see that personality be able to come out of Bob Holly and get some national exposure. You know, I know it fits in the story here somewhere, but he had a pretty famous promo where, and it may have been with China. I don't remember exactly, but he's cutting a promo and he's, there's a woman reference in here somewhere, but he said something on a live show about how he likes his women face down, ass up or something like that. Do you remember that made air that made fucking air? And it's, I mean, he had lots of fun lines. Like there's some fun YouTube clips of him trying to call out gang grill. And he says something like, what about you, Dracula? You fat bastard. I mean, <laughs> shit like that. It's just so funny. I love it. But when I, I'll never forget, like everybody in my house, when he had that face down line, everybody's looking around like, what the fuck did he just say? Live TV folks. It can be your best friend or your worst enemy. What a promo he was, man. Underrated. Um, let's talk about fully loaded. We've talked about this before. Uh, big show is working with uh, Kane here and Bob Holly is a special guest referee and he's really sort of stealing the show here. What do you remember about this match? Well, I, you know, the whole idea was Bob trying to come off and Bob seeing himself as just being just as big, really bigger than the, the guys that he's refereeing and being in there with, with show and Kane. He's got the authority. He's got the referee shirt. It was a way to just get his personality out there and get more of that asshole. The guy that you want to see that pops his mouth off at everybody, and you just want to see him get his ass kicked. You want to see him get it put in his place. But every time he gets put in his place, he comes back from war and starts yapping. He's like that little dog. He's like he's like my dog, Wally, who's about you know three inches long and has the biggest mouth in the house. It's kind of funny. Uh, because this, this promo stuff continues even the next night on raw, the acolytes would keep the tag titles beating Christian and edge when Gangrel would kidnap Christian and they do a double team power bomb to beat edge in three minutes and 40 seconds, but they had Holly doing the ring intros and he's pretty funny. He even announces himself as the winner. Of course, eventually he gets in the ring and attacks Farouk, but the acolytes lay him out. So Kane runs in choke slams, the acolytes, Bob, Holly and edge. Uh, and they keep this going. Let's fast forward to August 10th. Holly's doing an interview and he introduces his brother, Crash Holly, who's really Aaron O'Grady from the Independence. Uh, he's, of course, coming in from California. He's got his hair dyed blonde, just like Holly. And Meltzer would write their gimmick is to both argue over who is the toughest. It didn't get over. Why was Crash Holly the right guy? And how did this idea come to be? Because he writes in his book that. He shows up in Milwaukee and you come over and say, you're not the big shot anymore. Now you have a cousin and he thinks it sucks and allegedly lets you know that. And he wants to keep doing the super heavyweight thing, but he doesn't like doing it with a guy who looks like Elroy from the Jetsons. Well, uh, who says it didn't get over Bob, Bob said that it didn't get over Bob said, or Meltzer said Meltzer said, okay, well again, 
fuck Dave Meltzer. Um, it did get over, and it was it was a hell of a it was a hell of a team. Bob hated it at first because Bob wanted to see be a single. Bob looked at it at first as this is a tag team, and I tried to explain to him, no, it's not a tag team. This is just your brother. He's going to be coming in basically as a smaller version of you. You guys are going to fight, uh, not necessarily get along. He's going to be that irritating little pesky brother that you can beat him up, but nobody else can beat him up. And you two can fight like cats and dogs, but as soon as somebody else picks on him, somebody else kicks his ass, you stand up for him. And once they got into it, once they started working off of each other, I thought that they had some great chemistry and that it worked out great. Well, I mean, I think it changed Crash Holly's career. I mean, there's no arguing that. Let's get to SummerSlam 99. The Hollies are in a tag team gauntlet match here. They're working with Farouk and Bradshaw, and um, they're going to fight each other a lot. The Hollies are. Uh, in the end, it only gets a quarter star. As a tag team, did you like it? Or maybe not so much? I enjoy, I enjoyed the the whole gimmick and I enjoyed the the chemistry between the two and the the, the storyline that was there and it was it was a good storyline for both of them because you could put them you could put them against anybody you could put them up against the biggest team you could put them up against you know the smallest team it didn't matter because their dynamic would be the same and it was interesting so no matter what happened in the match you still had that Holly dynamic which I thought was entertaining the next night on raw Bob and crash are wrestling each other, but they fight to the back and let's fast forward September 14th. China's wrestling both Hollies by herself and Billy Gunn comes out to be your partner and uses the famous on crash for the pin. And after the match, Jarrett hits China with a frying pan, puts an apron on her and tell her, tells her to cook him some supper. And, um, Bob said that while he was doing this cousin's angle, he got to have some freedom in his promos. And he says that really just adds to the, to the enjoyment of the job. And I think a lot of people in this era would probably imagine you guys were scripting everything, but he's saying he got to have a little bit of freedom in his promos. When do you remember there being like a switch where it's not sort of bullet points and here's what we're trying to get you to get over. Because I think a lot of people think by 99 here, that's what it would be. He's saying maybe not so much. Well, a lot of it was scripted, and I think that Bob used the the rule a lot of times that if you're live, you know, after the fact, as long as it's good and it gets over, then go for it. So a lot of guys would use that, and as long as it got over, man, it was good. So sometimes it got over, sometimes it didn't. And if you were able to take that ash chewing when it didn't, more power to you. Um, and Bob was someone that would often deviate when he was live and kind of go off script a little bit. Um, Holly, the cousins gimmick, you know, was this sort of getting over backstage? It feels like this would have popped Vince McMahon. Uh, yeah, because it was entertaining and people, you know, crash was just a, he was a cartoon. I mean, he was, he was a damn cartoon, but he was entertaining in a tough cartoon. And he and Bob, for a shoot, I think there was a little bit of animosity there, but they got along. And it was actually a, it was a good relationship. It felt real. 
they're in a losing effort to Farouk and Bradshaw and edge and Christian at the rebellion pay-per-view. Uh, but they do pick up a win by DQ at no mercy over the new age outlaws. But the real story is the next night, the Hollies beat the rock and sock connection to win the tag titles. What did Vince see in them here to beat two of the very biggest stars rock and mankind? Well, it was, it was simply just to get the championships off of rock and mankind at this point. So it was, what is one of the least expected things that you can do and unpredictable to be unpredictable and have people guessing and and saying anything can happen. So nobody in their right mind is going to think that the Hollies are going to be rock and sock. Just like you said, why the hell would that ever happen? That's what he wanted people to say. And that's why we did it. Bob and crash, um, as tag team champions only last a week or two, and then they lose it back to mankind and Al snow. And he wrote in his book, winning the belts, wasn't a pat on the back for me or crash. We were just in the right place at the right time. They needed to get the belts off rock and Mick. And we happened to be the team in the middle, but by this point they were moving the belts around so much. They really had no value. Anyway, I didn't have any pride in winning the titles at that time. Some of the other titles I've won have been fulfilling because I knew I was being used and I was in a storyline, but in the grand scheme of things, what did I really want? It's pure fantasy. I didn't beat anybody. They let me win. I was told to be champion crash and I winning the titles was for the most part, the end of our storyline. We're going to go our separate ways and do away with the whole super heavyweight gimmick. I could have acted pissed off, resentful or whatever else, but they were going to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. We still worked with and against each other over the next year or so but our fighting Holly cousin story was finished and it was time for me to do something else. Why did this run its course? If it was getting over and people were digging it, just trying to get in or get out before people turn on it. Well, it was looking to try and do something both with, you know, with each guy individually, and you can always go back to it. They're there. They're both, you know, on the same shows and you can always go back to it, but let guys, let them each have their own individual storylines. They did work together with two cool at survivor series 99 to take on, uh, edge and Christian, Matt and Jeff Hardy. And to my surprise, the Hollies and two cool actually pick up the win. And I don't think a lot of people would have guessed that that was the case. Bob would, uh, pin edge after a roll up in six minutes and six seconds. They keep the match going though, because Christian would wind up pinning Christopher in 1145. Uh, in the end, it's a three-star match. Uh, lots of, uh, lots of work happening here on a pay-per-view. And I think a lot of people sort of gloss over the undercard of this era, I mean, but look who all's on here. You've got Matt and Jeff Hardy, edge and Christian hardcore Holly crash Holly and too cool in the same match. I mean, all those guys are eventually going to be hall of famers. Don't you think? Yeah, they are. And you know, as much as sometimes I think people hear and what they, you know, what they want to hear is us criticizing yeah. Vince Russo and some of his stuff, you know, to Russo's credit, this is where oh, he, was you gone. Look at, he was gone here, but, but I'm, I'm just saying to Russo's credit, some of the things that he did was give everybody a story and give everybody whatever they did, give them meaning. And this was another example of that where everybody had something to do and everybody had a story. Let's talk about, uh, what's next here because the Armageddon pay-per-view is something that, uh, I can't wait for us to talk about one day, Bob and crash Holly beat Rikishi for two and viscera in four minutes and 23 seconds. Meltzer calls it an awful match and gives it a negative one star. What can you tell us about this? 
Well, I think it would have had to improve quite a bit to be awful. Not good. Not good. And that, you know, going back to some of those that you like to block from your memory, this is one of those that you want to block from your memory that just, you have a vision and sometimes the execution of that vision just doesn't work. And, and Vince saw two big bastards in Rikishi and Fatu, um, Rikishi and Rikishi and Fatu. That'd be a hell of a match. Uh, but Rikishi and Viscera, two big bastards going at it, like two big water buffaloes colliding. Just not that entertaining when it, when you actually see it, it's, it's kind of slow and plotting. The SmackDown tapings on December 21st would see Jericho beat Holly by DQ to retain the intercontinental title. China, Miss Cat, and Crash all are involved in the finish. But the real story of December, and this is something I've looked forward to, the Hollies took on Moolah and Mae Young. And the Hollies get a win on December 28th in two minutes and 29 seconds. This is when Mae Young used the Bronco Buster on Crash. But fucking, that's not what anybody talks about. <laughs> this is, uh, this is sort of crazy. He says, may I've got all the respect for you in the world, but if you're asking me to clothesline you, you need to know that I'll lay it in there. And she said, sure. I know that I want you to clothesline me. And I said, no, you don't understand. When I clothesline somebody, I try to rip their head off. It's TV. I don't want it to look bad, but I don't want to hurt you. And he says this nearly 80 year old woman just looked him in the eye and said, bring it motherfucker. <laughs> what do you remember about this? You know, it's, there's so many similar stories of May Young and Moolah like this, where, man, you would watch them backstage and watch them walk around. Sometimes it would take them a little while to get up from their seats and they would walk around like they were going to break in half at any minute if the wind blew too hard. But there were no, no two tougher people on the entire roster than Moolah and May Young. And May, man, if he didn't bring it, she would have got up, no sold it, and kicked him in the nuts, probably in the middle of the match. It's That's fun. just how salty she was and how tough she was. He says that before the match, he gave her a hug and thanked her in advance for the match. And she brings it up again and wants to make sure that he's doing the clothesline. And allegedly, she says, if you don't bring it, when we get to the back, I'm going to kick your ass. So... He did it. <laughs> he, he nearly ripped her head off. She cuts a flip and he feels bad. But when they get to the back, he asked her if she's all right. And he, he's allegedly, she pats him on the chest and says, that's how you low a clothesline in right there. And just keeps walking. Is that not amazing? It, it was amazing and, and very true. And she didn't. It's funny. It was like they would come back from the ring and almost be rejuvenated. <laughs> like I said, it would you would watch them during the day and be slow getting up and down and everything. They come back from the match and she's got skipping her step and she's moving along and just kind of half, you know, running down the stairs and having a good old time. May Young was a tough old broad. You know what I just realized? No. The wrestling ring for uh, Moolah and May Young was like the movie Cocoon. <laughs> yeah very true very true that was where they came alive 
crazy. Uh, after the new year, Bob is, is working with China. Talk me through him working with China. How did he feel about that? You know, he was fine with it. It was really, you know, more him working the program with Jericho and China and Jericho were together during that time. So it was, it was a lot of the, those intergender matches. Some guys had a problem with working with China and some guys didn't. I don't remember Bob ever really having a problem with it because, you know, the same way Bob would bring it. China didn't complain. There's a three way at the Royal rumble in 2000 with Jericho, China and Bob Holly. And in the write-up, Meltzer wrote, can you imagine what kind of physique Holly would have if he actually took steroids? You know, Holly did have a reputation as being a clean guy, but he was a jacked motherfucker. I think that's an interesting point to bring up. Do you think if Holly would have been a little bigger and would have had, you know, more muscle packed on his frame that maybe Vince would have seen him a little differently? Um, you know, I don't know because of the time frame. I don't know, you know, during the time frame when Bob came in, that was kind of on the outs. So Bob's physique was probably something that Vince was gravitating more towards, you know, he had that build like Bret Hart, but Bob was somebody that would wake up at four o'clock in the morning to be at the gym at five to then go eat, you know, one of his six meals a day. And then he would travel just so he could get to the town so he could get a second workout in. And that's why he liked traveling with guys like Rick Martell and Sid, because they shared that same kind of commitment. They shared that same type of routine. Bob was an animal, man. He loved working out. Uh, still does. You know, he looks he looks great today. I saw him in uh, WrestleMania, and he looks great today. And he could go in and, I think, not miss a beat. I'm glad you brought up the, the present-day Bob Holly. What do you make of that big shoulder tap? It looks like something that uh, Batista and or Scott Steiner would be proud of. Oh man, you know, I'm not a tattoo fan. So I remember, I, I remember the first time that I saw it was when he came to TNA for us. Uh, he did a shot for us there and I'm looking at him and going, what the hell? I kept thinking that he had, that he had something on his arm that was marked up and then he took his shirt off and I said, oh, I hate it. But I hate it. I hate tattoos. Anyway, a little kabuki-ish. So he's working with the three-way here. It gets a star and a quarter at the rumble. Of course, the deal is, um, Jericho wins. Um, he's also in the Royal rumble match. He's eliminated there by Al snow, but the next night on raw, he goes into the women's locker room and winds up arguing and then decking China. Um, later in the show, Jericho would beat Bob in the intercontinental title match when China pedigreed Holly on a chair and then Jericho pinned him. Let's fast forward to the February 8th SmackDown, where we see Chris Jericho take on the Hollies in a handicap match. And he's doing this with one hand tied behind his back. Whose idea is this? Probably Brian Gewertz. Uh, you know, Brian was, Brian was writing stuff at the time and coming up with a lot of ideas and, and it was good entertainment. All right. Uh, Meltzer reported in the, um, March 13th observer, the situation with Kathy Dingman BB is that she hasn't been fired. Although the odds are that she may be. And she was given the word of that. The storyline situation is that she is outselling the power bomb through the table by the Dudleys. At this point, there are no plans to bring her back. And at this point, she is still getting paid under the guise 
that she's out selling an angle, but obviously if she isn't brought back, she'll be cut. She was hired by Terry Taylor, who is no longer with the company. So politically that worked against her. And the feeling is there that her portfolio, which is her modeling shots looked great, but she had no charisma in front of a crowd. It is true that she's now an item with Bob Holly, but we're told that had nothing to do with her employment status as if everyone in wrestling who was involved in affairs were let go because of them, the ranks of the wrestlers would thin considerably. What can you tell us about BB and was there any heat on Bob for the relationship or anything like that? No, I don't even think that we realized or knew that Bob and BB were a thing, you know, with, with Kathy Dingham, it was a perfect example of saw some pictures. Okay. She would be great to use for one segment when she gets there for the segment, they use her and and it's like, Oh, she'd be great to do this. We could use her for all of these other things. She had no training. She had never been trained to take a bump. She had never been trained to work and she couldn't do all the stuff that, that we needed her to do in that role. Her modeling pictures did look good, but she didn't have, she was a model. She wasn't an on-air talent. She didn't have any acting training. She didn't have any wrestling training. And she was put into a role based on pictures. And, and that's why sometimes some people shouldn't be hiring people. Any heat on Terry Taylor for bringing her in? Um, I don't know. You know, well, let me just ask. Do, do you think was the, was the word Terry Taylor brought her in because he wanted to fuck her? I mean, cause, I, you know, cause you're, you're hiring somebody. Terry, based you know, off Terry, I think that Terry sometimes would, would look at things and not, you know, Terry was very good in the ring mechanically and Terry's been heralded <laughs> as, as a great instructor, but I, I think sometimes Terry's judgment wasn't the best judgment All in right. the world and the reputation of him bringing in a pretty girl didn't go to his favor. Well, the reason especially I bring- when they had no talent. Well, that's what I mean. Like this is a guy who you just said yourself is regarded as a ring technician hires a person to wrestle without ever knowing if she really can. Like it's a, it's a picture based on a hire, which seems to me like, well, well, but see, here's the thing. She was brought in for one, for one shot and it wasn't a wrestling shot. It was, she was brought in to be an extra in a scene backstage. And then it, then it grew from there and she became a recurring character. And it's like, why are we doing this with somebody that has no experience? And, and then you're in it. So yeah, it just wasn't, in my opinion, one of the best decisions. At WrestleMania, Bob Holly winds up holding the prestigious hardcore title, which changed hands 10 times in 15 minutes. Is this just not the, the height of the silliness of the hardcore title? <laughs> God damn it. Every time, you know, yeah, it was fucking stupid. <laughs> There's no, how else do you explain it? It was fucking stupid. It was, it was, you, you just go on and every time somebody pins something, they're the champion. And it was the shits on the finish. Some of the glass that they used, that's right. Glass got in Taz's eye. And, um, fortunately for him, none of it cut the eyeball, but one piece of glass had to be taken out of his eye. And allegedly this happens when Bob was supposed to break the candy jar over Crash's head and cover him for the pin. 
But at the count of two, the time was supposed to run out. But what happened is that Bob was slightly early in breaking the jar and making the cover and crash who had no way of seeing the time didn't kick out when he was supposed to. So Tim white counted one and two and was bringing his hand down for three, waiting for the bell that didn't come. And he never actually hit the mat for three as Taz's body blocked him. And white then used that as his impromptu reason. What do you remember about this and Jr. trying to make sense of the situation on commentary where he's trying to say that crash had rolled his shoulder, which he clearly hadn't. Well, th- this is where sometimes it's dangerous for, and, and going back to the glass, it was sugar glass. It was not real glass. No, we didn't break a real glass candy jar over somebody's head. It was sugar glass. Um, that's not to say that, you know, getting that shit in your eye is good for you either. Um, but this is another example of why I think it's a good idea for commentators not to have the finishes because if something fucks up, they know what the finish is supposed to be. You automatically go into work mode and you automatically go into, well, that's not what was supposed to happen. So let me try and cover it with what it was supposed to be. And this was a case of everybody making the wrong decisions here because the referee there's a countdown clock there's a clock where everybody can see in addition to me being in their ear telling them counting them down in case they can't see the clock and it was just it was a total fuck up that's all it was there's no other way to explain it it was a fuck up on on everybody's part from crash not kicking out to tim you know coming down with what looked like a three count and everybody panicking on what to do next. And Bob, that's fucked up. Bob wrote, the problem was that the guys backstage who were counting Timmy down weren't in sync with the clock on the screen. So it looked like I'd pinned crash with two seconds left and they made a snap decision and had Howard Finkel announce that I'd won the match, not crash, but they had Crash's music queued up and played that, but they lucked out since he and I used the same music, but I was still, so we had Bob's music queued up about what had happened. <laughs> yeah. So was everybody else. Even crash didn't know what was going on. He thought he was supposed to win then grab the belt and get out of there. So he did. Timmy had to go get the belt off of him and bring it back to me. Crash wasn't upset because he didn't go over his plan. He didn't care about that. He was just glad to have a job, but backstage management said, we'll fix it on raw and switch the belt back to crash, which they did. Even so the agents and Vince himself chewed Tim white out. That seemed unfair to me. The blame should have gone to the people in the truck who were giving him the wrong information. Tim was just going off their cues. It was a big old mess, but I got paid nine grand. So I was happy enough. Well, I'm the guy in the truck and I wasn't in the truck. I was at gorilla position and I was counting Tim down and from Timmy taking his hand all the way to the mat for what looked like a three count on camera from our vantage point at that time to crash, not kicking out. All of that is alleviated if Crash kicks out. All that is alleviated. We were in sync with the clock, and it was just a fuck-up. It was a fuck-up on, on everybody's part. And we fixed it the next night. At Backlash, Crash Hollywood score the first pin to retain the hardcore title match. Matt and Jeff ran it, Perry Saturn, Bob Holly, and Taz. Uh, it only gets a star in three quarters. It is, a lot, it, it is pretty hard to follow a hardcore match like this with all these guys, isn't it? It, it, yeah, it's, it's just becomes a hodgepodge. And then you got now, instead of having just two guys, non not selling everything, you got 10 guys, not selling shit. 
there's something in the observer around the same time, the May 15th issue that the WWF was sending SA Rios, D'Lo Brown and Bob Holly to San Antonio for TWA shows. I don't think TWA gets talked about enough. Tell everybody whose promotion that was and, and why you guys were willing to send talent. Well, TWA was where Shawn Michaels had his wrestling school in San Antonio. And Shawn was also running spot shows in and around the San Antonio area. And TWA is where guys like Daniel Bryan, Lance Cade, uh, Brian Kendrick, all those guys came out of the TWA. And we would, from time to time, send guys down to go and work the shows to help Sean out. Well, let's talk about, uh, and this is something that I've wanted to talk about for a while, the story of WCW calling. Bob wrote, WCW got wind that my contract was expiring in April or May, so Eric Bischoff gave me a call. It was a quick conversation and we didn't even get as far as how they might use me. He told me that WCW would double whatever Vince's best offer was to keep me. And I told him what I was making. And sure enough, Eric offered to double it. I thanked him for the offer, but told him I was going to stick with the WWF. He said he understood and respected my loyalty. And that was that I sat down with Jim Ross to work out a new contract with the WWF. And he asked what sort of guarantee I wanted. I threw out a figure that I thought wasn't unreasonable. And JR said it wasn't exactly what they were thinking, but he'd see what he could do. They came back a few days later with the okay. And we got the new contract signed. It ended up being about an extra 40% of what I was making. And I was fine with that. Sure. Eric had offered to more than double what I'd been making, but as far as I concern, loyalty means more than money. I've always felt that way. The thought of going to WCW never even entered my mind. It wasn't an option. I was sticking with the WWF no matter what. Pretty rare in this time to hear a guy say that when you hear a guy say that he's willing to stay and he's not leaving even for double the money, do you think that's great loyalty or is it a bad business decision? No, I think it is great loyalty. And I also think it pays off for, for people definitely paid off for the rock, you know, paid off. I think for Bob Holly as well. Um, you know, Eric was, I think sometimes Eric would deny doing that you should ask him that on 83 weeks and and see what his story is there but um you know that was it was also a negotiating ploy that a lot of the boys were using at that time oh you know wcw is willing to give me uh double whatever you guys offer me i remember jerry lawler when jerry lawler came in after uh we let the cat go and said i've got an offer on the table right now from wcw for more than double what i'm making here we're like, well, we're sorry, um, but he didn't. You know, that's that's just the cold hard fact. Because if he did, he would have gone there. So people use that as a negotiating tool, and I, I guess only Eric and Bob will, will ever know if that actually happened or not. But I'm glad it worked out for Bob. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about uh, the next big angle that they're working with here, uh, and maybe we should mention here that um, Kurt Angle is working matches with Bob Holly in June. And he wrote, Kurt had this spot. He did in a lot of his matches where he goes for a moonsault and he missed. So I told him you need to hit the moonsault. If you didn't hit it, sometimes it would become too predictable when we went up to the top rope for it. Everyone would know he would miss. He said, I don't know if I can do that. I've never landed on anyone. And I told him it would be fine and it would be a good swerve. Everybody would be expecting him to miss. So why not nail it this time? When he came time, he slammed me and started to climb the ropes for the moonsault. And I was laying there thinking he's put me too far out, but I decided that he was a good athlete and he had big legs. He'd be able to jump that far and make it. As soon as his feet left the buckle, I knew he wasn't going to make it. 
I could see his legs were going to land on my ribs. So I rolled towards the ring post to protect myself. As I turned into him, his shin caught me on my forearm and it sounded like a damn shotgun had gone off. I rolled over saying you broke my fucking arm. Kurt didn't know what to do. So I said, cover me. That's what we plan to do. I guess he'd figure I'd just stay down, but that wasn't what we'd called. So I kicked out the expression on Kurt's face was total belief. What the fuck are you doing? Just hit me. What fucking hit me, Kurt. And in his book, Kurt said that once he'd broken my arm, he had to take over and become the ring general. No, sir. He did not. He was freaking out. So I told him to just keep going. I called the rest of the match and it was my decision to keep going. Not his. Even the ref asked, why are you still going? But I didn't answer him. I just got on with the match. At one point I was supposed to lift Kurt's legs to do a stomach stomp, but I couldn't even grab his right leg. My arm was just dangling, but we got through the rest of the match as planned. And I went back for the doctor to check me out. I was wondering if maybe it was just a bad bruise. What do you remember about this broken arm? Oh, it's fucking hot because you could tell Bob's arm was dangling. And, and if you go back and watch a match, you see Bob actually holding his wrist and, and holding his arm up. Uh, there was that spot as he talked about in there, you know, it, holding Kurt's legs up and he couldn't even hold Kurt's other leg up. But I had told the referee is Bob hurt. The referee let me know that Bob was hurt. I said, end the match, go home now. So we were pissed off that Bob kept going because he could have been hurt a whole hell of a lot worse by continuing with the match. And that's, you know, at that point when you do know someone is hurt, he had, he let the referee know that he was hurt and we were telling him just go home. So you don't get hurt worse. And they kept on going. Um, but yeah, it was, that was a bad break. Literally. Let's talk about, um, the call that he gets from Vince McMahon, because he does have to have surgery. He puts a, uh, the doctor puts a 10 inch titanium plate in his arm. And so now he's got these plates and screws, you know, almost sort of Lex Luger style. And Vince calls him right after the surgery and commends him for working through the match, but then reprimands him and says, never do that again. He says the broken bone could have cut an artery or something. And he could have fucking bled to death. How serious was that in hindsight for him to finish the match like that? It, it was very serious because again, like you said, he, he could have bled to death and we wouldn't have even known he's out there still working a match. Cause he's got to be a tough guy. Um, not cool, not cool at all. And at that point, uh, you know, SmackDown was taped. We could have covered it. it. It all would have been fine. Um, he just didn't need to do that. Didn't need to take that risk. He goes to OVW to rehab the arm and sort of work off the ring rust in November. And he says, while he's off, you actually called a few times and you're suggesting different scenarios for his return. And he wrote in his book after two or three calls, I realized they weren't really making any plans for me and Kurt to work together. And it was a shame because I would have made much more money if I'd done a program with Kurt, but it wasn't the end of the world. At that point, everybody was making shit loads anyway. I went back to putting people over and was still making a ton of money. That year was the only year in my career. I made more than my downside guarantee. All in all, I made double what I did the previous year and I didn't have to defect to WCW to do it. So it's a good money year, but he does sort of get the idea that you're not going to follow up given that he broke his arm. Wouldn't it have been an all right idea or did you guys just not see him at Kurt's level? No, that's that's not it at all. We already had other stories going on with Kurt. And to when Bob was coming back to just put Bob in there, insert Bob now, 
didn't make any sense storyline wise. We already had Kurt in other stories and he was moving forward and, and going in a different direction to just all of a sudden make a left turn to go back to Bob. That didn't make any sense. So that's why we weren't doing it. And when it came closer to the time for Bob to come back, we got to look for a new way to bring Bob back in without Kurt. One of the things I've, I've wanted to talk about here is how Molly Holly comes in because around this time, uh, he shows up backstage and crash comes over to him in catering and says, we've got a new relative. Her name is Molly Holly. And he wrote in his book. He didn't have a problem with that. They're going to just going to introduce another on-screen member. And he thought she was a very good worker, quote, a hell of a lot better than Trish Stratus ever thought about being. And she was smart too. I was never particularly close with Nora, but I respected her as a worker. She ended up in the traditional Holly role of doing all the hard work to make other people look good. I was much closer with Mike. He and I had a decent relationship and I ended up liking the little fucker. He grew on me. So I wanted to look out for him and protect him. Can you tell me about the relationship? You know, obviously they're not real relatives, but they are going to be working a lot. What was the relationship like with crash and Bob and then Molly and Bob? Well, I think, you know, Bob says it pretty well there because crash eventually grew on Bob at first, Bob wasn't really crazy about the family deal and thinking that he had a new partner and it was going to be a tag team. But after a while they grew on each other and Bob had, uh, or I beg your pardon, uh, crash had the same ethic work ethic in the gym, not necessarily in everything else, but he did have a pretty good work ethic in the gym. So they were able to work out together and Bob liked that. As far as Molly Holly goes, um, man, that was a suggestion from Randy Savage. And that was something that, that Savage had, you know, just kind of reached out and said, Hey, if you guys have anything, uh, Nora is top notch and he had used her in WCW with uh, gorgeous George. And he said, Hey, I'm, you know, may not, I know there's nothing there for me, but if you guys got anything for her, uh, she's a good girl and vouch for her. And just said she was a hard worker and looking for something to do. Bob, uh, has some swelling in a couple of vertebrae and winds up missing action until April of 2002. Uh, he thinks a lot of this is still going back to you know, some nagging injuries. And now he's even got tingling in the arm from the moonsault from Kurt angle. But before we get to his return in ring, he does an interview in March on WWF.com and he's addressing the return of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. He says, I wasn't happy to see them come back just because of the experiences before it just wasn't a good environment back then. And I hope it's not like that again. I don't think it will be because I don't think any of the boys are going to put up with it especially me. I've worked too long and too hard to get where I'm at. And Meltzer sort of recapped this and said, well, he's done for. Of course, we know that's not the case. Was he pretty vocal about their return? I, I don't think he was any more vocal than anybody else. I, again, I don't know of anybody, uh, particularly with the exception of Triple H, that was yay gung-ho for the NWO to come back in at that time. And I think everybody was looking at him to prove themselves and, and prove that that past reputation wasn't warranted, you know, or that, oh shit, Vince made a wrong decision. So no, he wasn't punished for it or anything else. He spoke his mind. He makes a return on April 4th on SmackDown and he's working with Maven. He gets a win here and he breaks Maven's finger in the process. 
any memories of this first <laughs> match back already hurting motherfuckers no god damn it it was an accident it was a gross son of a bitch though i remember that and it was you know maven coming back and looking and his finger was across his hand but shit happens around this time uh bob has an opportunity to work on tough enough and al snow is also one of the trainers Meltzer would write of al Meltzer would write of uh, Al Snow, the gentle, empathetic soul that he is, had a solution. Quote, the kids must be punished. The punishment consisted of them all getting their asses kicked in training, particularly by the perpetually angry Bob Holly. Bob apparently felt that their wild and crazy antics were putting his job with the WWF in jeopardy. At least that was his excuse this week for pummeling them into submission. And Bob says when they got picked up for a third season, he was asked to be a coach and told they had storyline plans involving him. So he's not going to be able to do it, but they didn't tell him anything about the storyline. So he suspected they were lying to him. Meanwhile, they kept using him to get other guys over and he was fine with it because he enjoyed it. And he says that I can lead somebody and I can help them learn. And he says that being a coach on tough enough actually showed him how to be very good in that role. Do, do we want to talk about the elephant in the room here? What's that? That Al Snow was really the one that liked to beat people up? That's what I was hoping you would say, because that's certainly the way it's been painted and positioned, but no, Al, you know, Al, no, Al was really, you know, Al's very tough on people in training. And I think that that Al, Val, that Al, given his choices, you know, would, would probably be exactly the way that I think they portrayed Bob in that role. I know what you're thinking we're going to talk about here. That actually happened at tough enough three. We'll get there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about maybe one of the more memorable moments of the year, September 12th. And Bob's not on TV a lot here. I mean, he is working with test occasionally. He's working with Kurt angle and Tajiri and even Randy Orton. And when he works with Randy Orton on April 26th, Meltzer wrote Orton looks so green as in greener than even Maven. Uh, things changed my friend. Uh, let's get back to September 12th though. Brock Lesnar working with Bob Holly and man, the shit hits the fan here. Chat me up. Tell me what you remember about this incident. Well, it was, it was during the match and again, it was Tate, but I remember Brock going for a, a power bomb and he got Bob up. They were screwed up on their timing and Bob didn't sit up and you kind of go back and watch it. And Brock basically just drops Bob. Um, couldn't get him up. And at that point, Bob needed to be back in position to get up for the damn thing. But when Brock dropped Bob, he dropped him right on his head and it, you know, broke Bob's neck and it, it screwed it up in, in a bad way. Um, I think there was a lot of, you know, rumor innuendo shit stirring and, and the experts of the world that weren't in the match, having an opinion on, on what happened but it was an unfortunate accident that took place in a ring and it ain't ballet. And sometimes guys botch spots and sometimes, you know, things don't go as they would like them to go. And that's all that happened. Brock, you know, people said, Oh, well, Brock did it intentionally. People say, Oh, Bob Holly was sandbagging Brock. Neither one of those is true at all. It was a fucked up spot. An unfortunate accident and an unfortunate injury occurred because of it. And, and that's what happened. 
Well, you know, he continues the match and he's clearly not okay, but he finishes it and it would be written afterwards. He just hasn't looked like himself lately. Bob is the type to ignore pain and work through the injury as long as he can. And allegedly this match is the subject of a lot of locker room talk. And a lot of people think that Brock sort of gave up on lifting Holly during the move. And some others think that Holly was sandbagging during the lift, just not cooperating in an attempt to make Brock look weak. Either way, it's a long-term injury for Bob Holly. And Meltzer would write, Holly is WWE management's go-to guy when they want to initiate a new wrestler into the ranks and test his threshold for pain. Holly is respected by management and fellow wrestlers for being tough himself and also tough on new wrestlers, but knowing exactly how far is too far to take such initiations. He lays in the chops and gets rough with the young wrestlers, but doesn't do anything to cause injury. Young wrestlers are evaluated on how they react to the treatment. Holly has denied to others that he had any intent to make Brock look bad, but other wrestlers who watched the match believe that Holly was attempting to teach Brock a lesson. Brock. Who se- say, who, wait a minute, but who's saying this Meltzer? Yeah. But based okay. on what other people are saying, that's all. That's his whole shtick based on what other people say, but yeah, I'm sorry. Bob seemed to be trying to send Brock a message that it takes two to tango. And without the help of his opponents, he wouldn't look nearly as good says one wrestler. What do you take of this? Do you think that Bob was intentionally sandbagging him and it backfired? Was there a real pissing contest? What was the reaction? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't Bob sandbagging him. It wasn't Brock fucking, you know, being a dick either. It was an accident. It's exactly what I said happened. It, it, it's, you know, the guys going into a spot, mistimed it. Bob didn't get up for the spot. Brock had him. Brock let him go. And I, Look, man, if Brock, if Brock Lesnar wanted to hurt you and put you on your head and hurt you, he could have done a hell of a lot worse than that. If Bob Holly wanted to sandbag him, Bob Holly could have sandbagged him a lot worse than that. It was an unfortunate accident. And I think that the bullshit that Meltzer's written here is just getting little bits and pieces from people who don't know what happened and just stirring shit to stir shit. And I don't believe there's any truth to either one of those scenarios in any way, shape, or form. When Brock came back, Brock was worried shitless about fucking Bob and was apologizing out the ass. Um, Checked on him. You know, Brock Lesnar kicked my face in, kicked a wall in, and kicked my face in. By the time I made it home, Brock Lesnar had, you know, shit in my house and, and... you know, making jokes and uh, calling me and apologizing and checking on me damn near every fucking day. That's, you know, that's probably the part of Brock Lesnar. Brock doesn't like to get out there. He's a good guy. He's, he's not, yes, he can be that asshole that he's portrayed, but no, I don't think that, that Brock intentionally did it. I don't think that Holly was sandbagging him at all. Here's what Bob wrote in his book. When the time came for us to go home, we set up for the power bomb. When he lifted me up, our timing was off. I jumped at a different time than he lifted. So I didn't manage the rotation I needed in order to get up on his shoulders. I tried to correct it, but we were both really sweaty. He tried to hold on to me, but he couldn't. And I ended up coming down on my neck. If you watch the footage, it looks like he drove me into the mat. As soon as I landed, I knew something was wrong. Everything in my neck just crunched. My whole body went numb. It was horrifying. Brock knew something wasn't right. So he gave me a moment to come back as the ref asked if I was all right. I said, I wasn't sure. I figured I'd be fine. As soon as I was able to move a bit. So I said, we should carry on and finish. 
It was a tape show. So we did the power bomb spot again in case they wanted to edit out the first attempt that went wrong. We did it fine this time. I got the rotation and landed on my feet and drop kicked him. It looked good. And then we went from there and ended the match with him beating me with his finish. When we got to the back, Brock was upset saying, man, I'm sorry. I feel like shit. He's trying to blame himself, but I told him it was all on me because I hadn't managed to sit up on the power bomb. He didn't drop me on purpose. I know that. There you go. So it's a non-story all these years, you know, even now people still talk about that, but right in Bob's book, he says non-story. He says he heard the same claim that people heard that Brock tried to drop him on his head on purpose because he wasn't cooperating. And maybe it was because he was trying to make him look bad, but that's not the case. And he thought he'd go home, give it a few days and he'd be fine. But he goes to the refrigerator to try to grab some lasagna and he knows something's really wrong. He nearly drops it. It's a pretty heavy dish, but surely he should be able to lift up lasagna and he couldn't. So something was wrong and it was time for him to, um, figure something out, but he still comes back to work and the agents tell him just stay on the apron to avoid hurting himself. And he agrees. He just won't take any bumps, but of course, eventually he hears a crack and this is not good. Um, they sent him to get an MRI and they found out he had a ruptured disc in his neck, a cracked vertebrae and pinched nerves. And they saw, they line up neck surgery right away. Why does it take so long to get an MRI? I mean, I know this is a different era, but it's almost like a, a badge of honor to fucking not go get checked out in this era. Is it not? Well, yeah, it is. And, it, and it's lack of communication. Again, if he's not telling us that he's hurt and these experiencing these things, we're not mind readers. We can't go and, and say everybody after every single bump, I'll go have an MRI because we think you're hurt. You're telling me you're fine. You're not having any symptoms. So there's no need for us to be concerned. Y- if you don't know, you can't do anything about it. Man, this is where the story gets weird. He says after he'd been booked for the next surgery, he gets a call from the office saying they need him to fly to LA to do a cameo on tough enough three. He says his arm is basically numb and he's uncomfortable with it, but agrees to do it. Cause that's just what he does. He says he goes out and meets the guy in charge big. He says, I know you're in pain and you're going to have surgery tomorrow. So I don't want you getting in the ring. And I said, we'd see. And if I needed to get in there, I'll get in there. But the plan was for him to just be there as a, as an advisor of sorts. So he's there doing some talking, giving some advice. And towards the end of the day, he watches the guys in the ring. He says they were doing a round Robin thing where they would tag in, do some spots and then tag out. They're all laughing and joking around. And that was it. I started to get pissed off at these wannabes wrestling is supposed to be serious. Since they hadn't listened to what I said earlier, I felt the need to educate these kids physically. There's a time and a place for kidding around and having a good time. And it's not when you're in front of a television camera, I take wrestling seriously and wasn't about to let these little fuckers act like goofballs. When I got in there, I'm sure they could see in my eyes. I was not fixing to laugh and have a good time. I was there to work and teach these kids what the wrestling business was all about. Matt Capitelli happened to be in there. When I got in, I knocked him down on the corner and started stomping on him. As I've said a million times already, I work stiff, but I don't set out to hurt people. He was flailing around trying to move and I wanted him to stay down, but he was not following my lead. Anybody who wrestles knows if you're in the ring with someone more experienced than you, then you go where he puts you and he controls what happens. Capitelli should have known it too, but he still squirmed and tried to get up. He ended up getting a boot in the mouth, which busted it open. 
The producers from MTV wanted big to step in and stop the match, but he told them not to be stupid. It's part of wrestling. I guess it got too real for MTV. What do you remember about this incident? What you heard about it and what you thought when you saw it, did you see it on TV, a tape ahead of time? What are people in the office saying? There, there was no controversy about this at all until it aired. So there was no talk. There was no buzz about this until it actually aired on MTV. It was no big deal. You know, it's, it's part, it's part of wrestling and it was part of something, you know, the way that we were brought up, it was a different way to be trained. It was a different way, uh, to learn the business. And I think if you were to poll every old timer in the business, they would all agree with the way that Bob Holly handled it. Here's the reality of the situation. Times were changing. And you cannot expect the talent today and or even at that time to to go through the business and go through the learning process the same way that all the old timers went through. It's just not real. The fact that they have a performance center where they can go and they can train and they have actual trainers and doctors on staff and they you know, they're physically fit. They go through every aspect with these guys. Now they're bust to the towns and in beautiful coaches, they have catering. You know, we had none of that starting out in the business. It's a different business and the business was changing. Then you can't apply the same training methods that were done 30 years ago to the talent of today. And even then, so Bob was doing what he knew. And again, it wasn't an uproar. There was no controversy about it until it actually aired in the day Meltzer's. Oh, this is terrible how he would rough it up. But then that was all accentuated and that was all amplified for the story. It's TV. It's TV. Exactly. So then that again, guys, that's part of the angle. I hate to tell you. Well, I mean, listen, everybody knows that reality TV is going to try to <laughs> turn something and I mean, nothing into something, no, but Shut up. still, I mean, I get how, if you're not, well, let me just read his book. Sure. I got rough with him. I'll admit it, but I'm rough with everybody. I took it upon myself to teach him what wrestling is like. Wrestling is a rough business. I didn't bust his nose or do anything to him that hasn't been done to me or wouldn't be done to him at some point in his career. But the next day they filmed Matt Capitelli crying like a little fucking girl saying he wanted to go home because he'd been roughed up a little bit. He had a black eye and a busted lip. I can't tell you how many black eyes and busted lips I've had. And not once did I ever complain about it. And here was this kid on a show called tough enough. And he was ready to go home because he got a little hurt. They ended up talking him into staying and they should have let him quit. As far as I'm concerned, if he was going to go on TV and cry about me being rough with him, he had no business in the wrestling business. Years later, he ended up with a brain tumor and I felt really bad for him, but he would have never made it in this business. I knew it because of the way he carried on after his run in with me. He didn't think getting hurt was part of the business. Are you fucking kidding me? I was there with cracked vertebrae and a shattered goddamn disc in my neck about to go into surgery the next day. And I'm in there teaching him how to work, getting on with it. And he got his lip busted open and he wants to quit the business. Wrestling was definitely not for him. To be completely honest, I was not much rougher on Matt than I was with anybody else. I was pretty much the same with everybody, but I'm a little bit rougher with somebody now and then it's to test them to see if they can take it. 
I'd seen Matt in training earlier that day. And although he was decent enough for what skills he had good enough to make it, my whole perspective on him changed when I saw him whining on TV. I lost all respect for him right there. I felt like saying, come on, this isn't fucking kindergarten. Grow up. Your reaction. Well, that's Bob's view. And, and I can actually uh, appreciate that view. I can also appreciate a guy that, you know, when you're brought into a business and you're told, Hey, you know, now this is a work and they think that a work is not getting hurt. They think that a work is that, uh, nothing's going to hurt, I guess, is, is the best way to describe it. That's not the case. You know, what they do hurts. It, it hurts bad. And it's not easy. So if you can't take it, you know, maybe this isn't for you. Um, I do disagree with them on on Capitelli as far as I thought Capitelli did have a future in the business. And I liked his personality. And, and I thought that, you know, there was maybe something that we could have done with him. And unfortunately, you know, cancer got a hold of him before anybody would ever really know that. And, you know, he's been dealt a really shitty uh, hand of cards right now. But, you know, he's toughing it out and, and getting going. But for Bob Holly, in, in a lot of respects, that just helped and added to a persona on television that you could then just exploit and build off of that, you know, for being a bully. Because people saw it. They saw it on a reality show. So, you know what? That must be real. Right. Did Bob get any heat from the office over this? No. Do you think he should have it all? No. Uh, You know, see, here's the, here's the thing. If there's going to be any heat about it, then they, then they shouldn't have brought him out there and they should have stopped it immediately. Right. So then the responsibility goes back there. But I think that in the, in that environment, at that time for that TV show, for everything else that was going on. Um, I thought it was good TV and I, I thought it was, you know, a guy that was brought up one way trying to teach someone else the way that he was brought up. And if they didn't like that, then they should have stopped it then. And that's how I feel about it. Let's talk about this. Um, the next day he gets neck surgery. I think that gets lost in the story. Um, but when he's out, Vince calls him to check on him. And so does Brock. Allegedly Brock calls a few times to apologize again and check on him. And he keeps telling him not to worry, but this is sort of something we hear a lot that whenever a guy comes out of surgery, Vince calls and checks on him. Is that a a real big priority for Vince? Yes. Yeah. He wants, you know, he wants to, he wants to know, and he wants them to know that he's accessible. And yeah, I don't know if it happens as much today, but I'd be willing to bet that it probably still does. So Bob's ready to come back in October of Oh three. And he's sent to OVW to sort of start the process. And of course, right away, Jim Cornette sees money and puts him in an angle with Matt Capitelli and Keller reported Ohio Valley wrestling has built a major feud on his TV show around the incident on tough enough three where Bob Holly roughed up Matt Capitelli, a student early in his training. The October 4th TV show built up to a TV main event this past weekend where Capitelli beat Holly by DQ and the October 4th angle saw Cornette interview Holly making his return to TV after a long absence from injury. This is fucking booking 101. Great stuff here by Cornette, is it not? <laughs> yeah, of course. You got two guys that, you know, people saw on quote again reality television that they believe is real. Man, that's reality based, so you capitalize on it. 
So he's back on TV on October 23rd, SmackDown, and it's a promo from Holly vowing to get revenge for Brock hurting him. Bob says they didn't really build up the match for my return. They asked me to fly up to Stanford, record a promo, which was fine. I had no idea what they wanted until we got there, but at least they were going to definitely have me come back and work with Brock. We did a 30 second vignette where I said that Brock had taken 12 months away from my life and now I was coming for him. I wasn't coming for his title. I was coming to hurt him, but Brock didn't want to work with me. That didn't help. He was fine with me when the injury happened and he was fine with me afterwards. But when our first match back had happened, I was just somebody to help him get over. When I came back, I was still not a top guy. They weren't going to put me a mid-level job guy for about a decade now in there with the company's biggest monster. Believe me, I understood why Brock didn't want to work with me. He thought he damn sure wasn't going to make any money from that. I wasn't a draw. And unless they promoted the return really well, I wasn't going to be. You think in hindsight, you guys could have done more with that, build it up a little longer, build to a pay-per-view or something. It didn't have to be a SummerSlam or WrestleMania, but there was money in that as Brock is the top guy and there's a real life injury, right? I don't know if there was or not. And that's, that's why we were willing to try. There were, there were a lot of people that felt that there never would be a time to do Bob Holly and Brock. And it was, it was my thinking in, and I'll take 100% uh, credit and or blame for it. Uh, it was my thinking that it was a real story that we could tell the story that in a match with Brock Lesnar, he broke his neck and he was out for all of this time. And it's an opportunity to capitalize on that. The other issue that we had was we needed a, we needed something for Brock to do kind of in between at the Royal rumble. It wasn't a risk putting that match for the championship at the Royal rumble because you had the Royal rumble match itself and, and all of that to already draw off of if it worked and there was interest there, then we could do something beyond that. Um, it was an opportunity and I, I thought, thought it was a logical story. His return. He wants to avenge the guy that put him out. He's coming for the championship. He's coming for the champion. He gets his opportunity at the Royal Rumble. No harm, no foul. And if it really, you know, took off from there, then we we go forward with it. That was the thinking behind it. Bob says a couple of weeks after the promo aired, they have him tape a conversation with the GM of SmackDown, Paul Heyman. And then Paul banned him from the building, promising that if he left immediately, he'd be on the team against Brock at Survivor Series. And after doing a promo where he said he'd be coming back to hurt Brock, here he was putting his tail between his legs and behaving himself. He says it didn't make any sense to him. So he puts a match together where he gets to choose his tag team partner for him. And he's going to have to fight a train and Matt Morgan. And he gets Shannon Moore, a guy who he says did frequent jobs as his partner. And they beat a train who he calls a massive jobber. And Matt Morgan, who he calls a big rookie from tough enough too. it was meant to help me get over, but I beat one new guy and Morgan and a guy who everybody beat a train. This wasn't enough to get me on Brock's level. And then they figured they'd have me go over on the big show and that would be enough. But in reality, everybody beat the big show back then. I mean, it does feel like, you know. You're doing, you're trying to do something and he's just not pleased with it. That gets us to the Royal rumble. This is where the match finally happens. Brock Lesnar and Bob Holly. 
it's, uh, it's what he's been hoping for, but it's still not exactly what Bob was hoping for. Brock gets the win six minutes, 22 seconds to retain the heavyweight title. It only gets a star and a half in the pro wrestling torch. And Bob said, we were set to have our match at the Royal rumble. And it was a pretty big deal for me to be in a WWF championship match for one of the three biggest shows of the year. It's definitely the highest up in the card I'd ever been. And you could say it was the biggest match of my career. If I was able to look strong against Brock, that would really help me. And we laid out a good match, even though Brock hadn't wanted to work with me. He was very giving in the ring and unafraid to sell for me. What'd you think of the match? It is the biggest moment he's had a world title match at the Royal rumble. You know, I, I thought it was okay. And I mean, I, I'll say it was good, but it was just wasn't a whole lot of interest there and people really didn't care. And maybe it was, maybe it was, you know, too much of people looking at Bob is, is a bully. And the, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the, Brand new gas station opened up down the street. There's a lot of excuses for it. People just didn't care. They didn't want to see it. Otherwise, you know, we'd have done it again, but it just didn't work. And we moved on, but we gave him the opportunity, man. And, and it's like, okay, here, uh, we could have just brought him back and have him put people over. And you weren't totally done with him in fairness, because you did let him work with uh, Kurt angle on February 5th on SmackDown. And they went about 14 minutes. Of course, angle one later in the month, though, Wade killer would report in the torch. Bob Holly is another unpopular figure in the SmackDown locker room. Wrestlers say he's always in a grumpy mood and comes off as bitter as if he deserves a push simply because he's been in the company a long time and it doesn't happen. He's wrestling mostly on house shows and velocity, almost no direction. Um, fast forward to June and he's working with Mordecai and that happens when they bust through some doors and Mordecai yells, I will crucify you. What's your favorite Mordecai memory? Uh, my favorite Mordecai match would have to be that one against, uh, Tojo Yama Jarrett. There you go. In the July 14th torch Wade wrote Bob Holly and Billy Gunn don't appear to be on the bubble when it comes to losing their jobs. As many have speculated, but if they were, there would probably be a party in the locker room as they remain two of the least popular wrestlers in the dressing room. They're the most miserable fuckers on the roster. Said one SmackDown source. There's a difference between being complaining and saying the business owes me more than this. They are your typical bitchers and whiners says another source. They are definitely the two guys with the worst morale on a roster that otherwise get along really well. They definitely talk about how much more they deserve than they're getting. Talk to me about this. What's the general feeling on Bob Holly here in 2004? <laughs> you know, I think that Bob just in general could come across as a grumpy guy and pissed off all the time. But I wasn't in the locker room all the time. I didn't hear him bitching and doing that all the time, nor did I hear, you know, any of the talent come in and, and complain about that. However, you know, I could definitely see Bob's just demeanor and his whole personality being grumpy and a miserable son of a bitch. Sometimes, um, he liked to go work out. He liked to eat and probably was unhappy that he didn't have the belt wasn't beating everybody. Um, but you know, again, Wade sources, well, since he has sources, then it must be true. He did get a, a brief program with the WWE champion JBL at the end of September. 
they even have a match on September 30th. Of course, uh, Holly gets a win by DQ. So the title doesn't change hands. And then he beats him by count out the next week. But around this same time is when there's an incident with Bob Holly and Renee Dupree and a rental car. Do you remember the story here? Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and I only got Bob, Bob's version on that, on this. So bear with me there, but it was something about, uh, Bob having a, a rental car and letting Renee, Renee asked to keep the rental car. Bob was going back. Bob says, yeah, just make sure that, you know, you fill it up with gas and you return it before the time. And Bob was on the road and finds out that there's a warrant out for his arrest in the state of Washington and that they have, uh, suspended his license for parking tickets and some other bullshit in Washington. And it was on this date that Renee had the car. So Bob having a very short fuse, which Bob Holly does have, uh, apparently confronted Renee about it. Renee denied it and said that he didn't have any tickets and he doesn't know what the hell Bob's talking about. And Bob kept confronting him and kept confronting him and finally told him, you know, I'm going to kick your ass. And Bob, I believe kicked his ass in, in the ring one night. And, but he told him ahead of time, he said, either come clean or I'm going to kick your ass and you better. I think the, I think the line was, you got 24 hours to learn how to fight bitch. That's it. That's what he wrote in his book. And he says that all the boys turn around and look at him. And Renee just sits there looking like a deer in the headlights. And 24 hours later, he still oh, hadn't fuck apologized. Yeah, was on the plane. Hey, 24 hours later, he still hadn't apologized. And they're in Rochester, New York, where we'll be what day, July, what? Well, what day was it? I don't fucking know. July 4th. I don't know. July 7th. Jesus. Fuck. Uh. Um, I'm trying to keep God you. damn it. What, just, the, what cloud bragging, am I on right now? I was just now. bragging about you earlier. Like, man, we've been working together so long. You just know where I'm going. You're like, I don't know. Is it what Thursday? What's going on? Are you talking to me? Is it AM? Is it PM? I better take my pills. Doop, doop, doop. Doop, doop, doop. Um, so anyway, he's in Rochester, New York, <laughs> and he has a match. It's him and Charlie against Renee and Kenzo. And he starts hitting Renee, really laying it in and saying, Hey, hit me back. We're fixing to go. And he runs away, even goes to the back to backstage. So he goes after him. He catches him, drops him and just beats the living shit out of him. Big show stops him, grabs him, pulls him off. And Dave Finley, who's an agent comes over and says, what the fuck, Bob? And Bob says, no, what the fuck, Dave? You don't know. He tells him about the ticket situation and Finley says, okay, he deserved to have his ass kicked. And he, he says, quote, I fucked Renee up enough. They had to take him to the hospital for a bunch of scans. And I got a call from Johnny Laurinaitis that night at the hotel asking what happened. After I told him, he said, you can't be doing that. And then started laughing. He carried on with, but who am I to tell you that when I used to do that same sort of thing myself, he told me later that Vince wasn't mad at me, but he just didn't want this thing going on anymore. By TV on Monday, Vince's mood had changed or been changed. Tell me what you remember about when he finally has to sit down with Vince. Well, you know, here's the thing. You can't have a workplace where people are going around beating other people up. Now, if people were walking around first family mortgage, um, 
and beating people up because they got mad, then that wouldn't be a safe work environment. And it just wasn't good. Um, Regardless of who's right and who's wrong, it wasn't cool. And that's what Vince was pissed about. It. Can I tell you what he wrote in his book that will tickle you? Sure. Johnny came to me and says, Vince wants to see you in a bit. And he's pissed. Somebody got in his ear and said that what you did to Renee was bullshit. And I said, let me guess that wouldn't be Hunter. Would it? Do you think that Hunter sort of got in Vince's ear? I wouldn't be surprised. So when they finally sit down, Vince starts in on him and he throws his hand, Bob throws his hand up and says, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Don't sit here and yell at me when you don't know the story, because I'll just get up right now and walk the fuck out. And he says, Vince was taken aback that he couldn't believe somebody was talking to him like that. And he looked at Johnny and then at me and says, okay, tell me what happened. So he went from yelling to being as calm as he could, just like that. And Bob says it was the only time Vince ever yelled at me. And explained what happened. I started talking about the type of person that Renee was. I told Vince how he acted towards people in public, how he would talk down to waiters and restaurants. If the food wasn't fixed, right. I told Vince that this wasn't the sort of person who represented the company. Well, and he got his ass kicked because he deserved it. And Vince said, and these are the words out of his mouth. I don't know. Renee. All I know is the guy kisses my ass every time I walk by. And he went on to say that the majority of the people who work for him only ever told him how good his hair looked or how nice his tie was. And he couldn't stand the ass kissing. I couldn't believe he was telling me all this. He said he understood why I did what I did to Renee, but he couldn't have that going on at his shows. So he's got to find me $10,000. I said he could find me as much as he wanted because I believed what I did was the right thing to do. And Renee had refused to own up to what he'd done. He'd cost me my driver's license. He'd caused me to be thrown in jail or could have been thrown in jail and nothing Vince said or did would change my mind. So Vince stood up and shook my hand and said, just don't be doing that anymore in my ring. If you're going to do it, do it somewhere else. And I said, no problem. Can I do it in the locker room? He knew I was joking and we left it there. Later, Johnny came to me and said, when you told Vince to be quiet, I thought you were done. After the meeting, apparently Vince turned to Johnny and said, I have a lot of respect for that guy. This is a story unlike anything we've ever heard before. Were you there? Did you hear this? What'd you hear about it? Oh, I thought Vince's arms looked great. I put oil on them later. Um, you know, no, I, I wasn't there in the meeting. No, it was just, it was just them. I remember hearing the story though. And you know, Vince was pissed off at the incident. And, and again, it took place in front of a crowd and that's what he was pissed off about. Um, shit happens, you know, and guys deal with it. And that, that again, goes back to the old school. That's how guys dealt with shit, you know, back in the day. And Bob's an old school kind of guy. I guess we should talk about, um, you know, after this, it doesn't feel like there is a, a solid plan for him. He works the Armageddon pay-per-view in December. And here we would see the Bashams beat Charlie Haas and hardcore Holly. It only gets one star at the 05 Royal rumble. He comes in at number four and he eliminates Daniel pewter. And then was eliminated by Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. He's booked with Daniel pewter a little bit here, uh, but he's really not doing much through the rest of 05 in October. He gets a brief feud with Mr. Kennedy where they wrestle at no mercy on October 9th. Kennedy of course wins, but at the end of 05, he gets a really bad staph infection 
and he wounds up being out till like mid Oh six. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough deal here. Uh, he's got to let his left il- elbow heal before they can do anything with the right elbow, because he's going to have to have surgery on both. And then he eventually gets a call from the office in mid Oh six telling him they're going to put him with the new ECW brand from now on. And they're going to resurrect that promotion and he's going to be a part of it. And they don't ask him if he wants to be a part of ECW. They just tell him why was, uh, Holly the right guy. I mean, even he wrote, he thought ECW would be a perfect fit for him. He was excited thinking he'd be one of the top guys and get more TV time and be involved in the mix a little more. But what did you guys see in Bob Holly that made you think, Hey, this is an ECW guy. First name, hardcore last name, Holly. I am hardcore. I think that was it. I think he was a logical fit for it. Hell, just because of his name and his style, I think people would believe him in that ECW brand. He's working with Rob, and he doesn't have a problem putting Rob over. He says that's his job, and he's always liked him. He's one of the best guys you'll ever meet. Uh, And on September 26th is when they have the match that I think a lot of people remember between the two. Uh, They do a suplex spot through a table. And Holly gets a huge gash on his back. And it's one that they even showed at the opening. A lot of their shows for a long time. He sees all the blood coming down like a puddle of blood. And he remembers thinking, holy shit, where did that come from? He didn't know if it was Rob's blood or his, but when he sees it running down his side, he thinks, what the fuck have I done now? He wrote as nasty as it looked, it didn't actually hurt that much, but I thought it added to the match, made it more interesting for the fans and the rest of the match felt good. And the people were into it. I wrestled another eight minutes with the injury. And as I said earlier, it's probably the best match I ever had. I earned a lot of respect that night. And when I got backstage, Vince shook my hand, gave me a hug and said, you're one tough motherfucker. Thank you for the great match. The result of course is 25 stitches in the back. What do you remember about this pretty famous match on SmackDown? Well, first of all, the match was excellent. Uh, one word kind of describes that injury and it's gruesome. Uh, he had a gash that was absolutely brutal. And that pretty much sums it up. He is one tough motherfucker. And just the bump in and of itself was brutal. Add to that, the cut scary shit. Yeah. I I mistakenly said that it was on SmackDown. It's actually on ECW. If you want to go find it, it is on, on the tube of you, uh, nine 26. Oh, six is when you need to look for, um, Rob says, or Bob says after the match, he's probably the most over he'd been in like five years. And he feels like this is a great chance for them to capitalize on this because he's proven he can cut a decent promo. He's got credibility with the fans and this is supposed to be the big break, but instead they turn him baby face. And he thinks that's dumb because you guys realize that at least in his words, a few weeks later, when you turn him back heel again, and he says, you can't do that. You can't turn a guy too often or too quickly because the audience will just stop caring. And all that momentum he thought he had after the match with Rob just sort of fucking vanished. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I actually agree with that and wasn't in favor of it, but they felt that he came across as this tough son of a bitch that people would respect that they would be able to get behind him as a baby face and believe in him. Um, but his, his personality is that and his attitude was out of a heel. So it just didn't make sense. didn't work. And they quickly changed it back. Um, one of the things I've wanted to talk about here is the December to December pay-per-view. Um, 
Bob replaces Sabu in the elimination chamber. And he says he turned up at the arena that day and they take him aside right away and say, Sabu failed the drug test. So they're taking him out of the match and putting you in. And he even gives punk his first loss in ECW. Um, I mean, what's the thinking there? Uh, Bob says the office didn't make it mean anything. They didn't do anything with him or me as a result. It was like just a throwaway. Nobody was keeping track of Punk's win-loss record, so it wasn't a big deal that he was undefeated. That match was had one purpose, and that was to get Bobby Lashley over. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, in in that scheme of things, you know, Punk and Bob were there to do that. Get Bob, I mean, get Bobby Lashley over. So there, there was no thought into, oh my God, this is CM Punk's undefeated streak, and nobody cared. It's sort of a fun deal here. Um, he, he starts working with Bobby Lashley and he's hurting again. So he's thinking he's going to have to have another surgery because he's got so many pieces of bone floating around in his elbow. He's pinched a nerve here and it's affecting his hand so badly. He thinks his hand's starting to atrophy. So he's got surgery scheduled to take care of it, but he has to cancel it when Vince McMahon calls and says, Hey, I got big plans for you. We're going to build to a match with WrestleMania and we're going to have Donald Trump. And there's going to be a wrestler representing each side. And he says, Vince took me aside and told me he was going to go with Bobby representing Trump and me representing him. And he would appreciate it greatly. If he would put off the surgery until after WrestleMania, so he could work the match. I said, sure. No problem. Hell, I'm going to be in a main event match at WrestleMania. I could tolerate being uncomfortable a little longer. Then closer to mania, he had a cage match with Bobby on ECW TV where he got beat in less than five minutes or he would lose the title and he was going to go over and he thought it was sort of fucked up to have him beat him in less than five minutes. If they're trying to build this up for a big match on pay-per-view during the match, Umaga came down and after Bobby had beat me, he did a running jump into the cage wall, busted it down and made the whole thing collapse on Umaga right then. I knew I was out and Umaga was in. They didn't even have the decency to come let me know in advance. I wasn't angry, just disappointed. When I saw Vince after the cage match, I asked him what happened. He said things had changed, but he promised me I'd have a match at WrestleMania. And I said, as long as I can have a match at the show, I'll be okay. But he shows up in Detroit for WrestleMania and his name isn't on the sheet. He's not in any match. There's another ECW match there, an eight man tag team match. And one of the teams was made up of four new guys who combined hadn't been in the company a fraction of the time I had been, and they're all on the pay-per-view. I was fucking furious and management knew it. They knew they'd done me wrong, but Vince never apologized. And that was my breaking point. I felt so hurt. I'd been so loyal to this company and worked so hard night after night. I'd worked hurt. I'd done everything I could do to make the up and coming stars look good. And they had my hopes built up and broken down like that. It was such a letdown. After all the years of working hard because it might be my time soon, I just realized it was never going to happen for me. The next day at TV, I went to see Dusty Rhodes and his writing team and told him that if he wasn't going to use me, I was going home to get my elbow fixed. And that was that. They never did give me that ECW title run. Instead, they wrote me out of storylines with an injury, and that was the end of my run in ECW. Another wasted opportunity. What do you remember? Was Bob Holly the original plan? Is he... Is he spitting the truth here well there's first times for everything that's the first time i've ever heard that that story and or that version um 
Now, I'm not going to dispute whether or not Bob Holly had a conversation with Vince and that WrestleMania was talked about and Vince talking about doing something with Donald Trump and different things like that. However, uh, from my vantage point, being in the creative and working with Donald Trump from day one in that entire scenario, I never heard Bob Holly uh, being considered for that role ever once. And you know, listening to the to that whole diatribe there, I I could see where he might have heard. You know, when people talk to Vince, they hear what they want to hear. And Vince may say key things, and it's like, he said WrestleMania, he said me, he said Trump, I'm the guy. But why did he, I mean, I, I hear you on that, but he also said don't have the surgery. And then, then he's not even on the fucking card. Again, I, I can't speak to that. I, I truly cannot speak to that. Um, maybe it was to get to the match or he talks, you know, it's a work. He didn't get surprised with Umaga coming out in the match and then go, Oh my God, wait a minute. They're doing something with Umaga now. Come on. It's, it's a work. He knew that. And I think that sometimes guys hear what they want to hear. Um, as far as the surgery, maybe he thought, that that's what Vince was trying to tell him. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't privy to their one-on-one conversations. I can tell you from my vantage point, from a creative standpoint, building to WrestleMania, it was Umaga and Bobby Lashley as the guys with Trump and Vince. So Bob was out for several months in 07. And when he comes back, he's putting a storyline with Cody Rhodes. He says, they brought me into a storyline as the hardened veteran who was going to test the new kid on the block. So it wasn't my usual thing. I wasn't going to be used for a one match and put the new guy over it. This was an ongoing program and they were going to use me to help the kid to develop his craft and understand how things in a single or tag match worked. The kid in question was Cody Rhodes, the son of the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I was going to be his mentor, groom him and help him get over. We laid it out like this. In the first match, I would beat him and then he would come back and ask for another match. I'd beat him again and he'd kept coming back and I'd beat him each time. He'd get closer and closer, trying to earn my respect. And it was a good angle from there. We built to a point where I was teaming with him and helping him on screen because he had shown he was worth my time. He got to beat me one-on-one in a match at the end of the storyline. And we settled into a run as a regular tag team. After that, I liked working with Cody because of his dad. I guess he was old school and quick to learn. I thought he was a good worker. This is sort of fun considering, you know, where Cody is now. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, he's arguably the top draw, uh, you know, outside of WWE. And that's hard to argue when you see all in sell out in a half hour. What did uh, you guys know about Cody, you know, all the way here in 07? Well, I think that, you know, there was, for me, the light bulb moment with Cody was when he inducted his dad into the Hall of Fame, where He went out and cut an emotional promo that had people in tears. That's where, you know, Vince, I I remember Vince and I looking at each other going, holy shit. We didn't know that's what we had on the promo side. So that was the aha moment, at least with us and Cody. And the whole deal with Bob Holly working with Cody was exactly that. Bob was looked at as the hardened veteran and due to his time with tough enough and, kind of being that coach and that mentor, it made a lot of sense. Put him, you know, put him with Cody and let, let Cody be that mentor, helping him out and bringing him along and also be able to be in the ring with him and coach him as we go. 
Bob said Vince came over to him earlier in the day and said, Bob, this is TV. I want you to slap Cody. And when I say I want you to slap him, I want you to fucking slap him. And I said, you ain't got to tell me, but one time when we rehearsed the scene, but not the slap, Cody wouldn't be able to take that twice. Vince came over and told Cody, we had to nail this because it was going to be played live in the arena. Are you on board with this? Yes, sir. No problem. Cody responded. So they counted us down and we did our promo and it came time for me to slap him and I fucking cracked him. I slapped the everlasting piss out of him. It sounded like a shotgun going off. You could hear the whole crowd in the arena going, whoa, Cody sold it and whipped his head back around at me. And I could see that his eyes were sort of glazed over. We finished up. And as soon as the producer told us we were clear, Cody walked out of the room for a moment, shaking his head to clear the cobwebs. About five seconds later, he came back in. I asked if he was okay. And he said he was fine. Vince was pleased and says, that's what I was talking about. Good job. We've, we've told this story before with Jericho and John Cena. Why does Vince love these fucking let's lay it in slaps in the backstage area? And and I produce, and I produced this and it was when you're backstage and you don't have a crowd and you don't have that ambiance and it's, it's a sterile environment. If you try to work something and especially a slap, it sounds like shit. It looks like shit. So you, you have to lay it in. It has to, you, you apologize up front and it's a, it's a whole different world backstage when you don't have that crowd and that ambience and that crowd noise and everything else working with you. It just has to be, you have to lay it in. And that's why, you know, some things look great. This look great. Some things don't when they try and work shit. Apologize ahead of time. On December 15th, or December 10th, rather they do the raw 15th anniversary. And here we would see hardcore Holly and Cody Rhodes beat Cade and Murdoch to win the tag team titles. They have roughly a six month run here with the titles. And Holly says it didn't really mean a damn thing for me financially, but I got a couple pay-per-view checks out of it. But unfortunately Cody wasn't getting over like the office thought he would. And anytime we tagged on a house show, if I was on the apron and the crowd would start chanting hardcore, or we want Holly. It happened no matter what Cody was doing in the ring. He writes, even when he made the comeback, they still wanted me and not him. He just wasn't getting over. And I don't know why I've tried my best to get him over and not be selfish with our TV time. And he threw that back in my face in the end. And he tells a story about being at raw one day before the show and his dad, dusty pulls him aside, not him, Bob, him, Cody says he has no idea what they're talking about. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. But then in their match that night, he writes, I worked about 40 seconds at the start of the match and then tagged Cody in. And I stood on the apron for another six minutes. He didn't tag me back in and he got the win. I walked into the ring and got my hand raised and said, thanks for tagging me back in. Whatever happened to that? He didn't say anything. When we got through the curtain, his dad walked right up to him, whispered something in his ear. And that was that I knew they just pulled a fast one on me. That was their way of saying, we'll show you because you're over and Cody isn't after that. I didn't trust him anymore. I'd helped him along so much. It wasn't right that he treated me that way. This is the first I've ever heard of this story. Do you remember this incident with Cody and Bob Holly and dusty? No, I don't. And again, that, that goes back to the agent who ever laid out the match. And if that was laid out that way, or Cody didn't do what he was told by the agent, then that goes back to the agent, whoever set up the match, the producer that set up the match. Um, 
Man, especially at that time with Cody, I believe that Dusty, first of all, Dusty wants the best for his son, and Dusty is, is looking out for him. At the same time, Dusty was very aware of the fear of nepotism and, and favoring his son, and he was very concerned about that as well. So I never witnessed anything like that with Dream and, and Cody, probably more to the contrary of Dusty trying to distance himself when it came to Cody and, and kind of biting his tongue and sitting back like, I wish I could say something there, but he didn't because he knew that people were looking at him in that way. And they're going, God, you know, okay, Dusty, are you gonna are you gonna go back to your old Dusty thing and push, you know, push your kid like you push yourself? And Dusty was so conscious of that. I never saw that. I never did. Especially with Cody. Yeah, I've just never heard that until this book. So it's an interesting story, if none if nothing else. Let's talk about, um, the incident that I guess got everybody talking uh, in mid 2008, there's a show in Bakersville, California, Bob's hurting pretty good. His neck is hurting. He needs some pain meds. He's put off another elbow surgery and he asked Ken Anderson if he can borrow some pills and Ken says, sure, just go in your bag, go in my bag and get them. And he says, that's normal in the locker room. It's an unwritten rule. Everybody helps each other. The office knows it happens, but they turn a blind eye because they know the guys need it sometimes. And allegedly Ken even says, Hey, if you need anything else, just help yourself. So later that day, of course, he did need some more. So he goes back and helps himself from Ken's bag. And he says, Ken comes in with Umaga a few minutes later. And I tell him I taken four pills and would replace them when I got my next prescription filled. He said that was fine. And then he started giving pills to Umaga. He thought that was the end of it. And a week or so later, this rumor comes up that now Bob Holly has went into Ken's bag without permission. And he confronts Ken about it and calls him at home and says, Hey, here's what I heard. Ken says, no, everything's fine. But in the end, he gets a call from Johnny Ace asking what's going on. And he just relays what he'd heard. And he found out afterwards that through talking to John Cena and Shawn Michaels, the rumor had started when Umaga told a couple of people that he'd gone into Ken's bag to get pills. Ken never told Umaga that he had said he could. And then the rumor started spreading. He says, Ken could have stopped it by saying, I told Bob was uh, told Bob it was okay, but he didn't. He'd been lying to me the whole time, claiming he didn't know what was going on and not admitting that he couldn't, or he hadn't squashed the rumor. It was just self-preservation for Ken. Word had spread that I'd taken stuff from his bag. And when the rumor reached management, Ken could have gotten trouble. So he stooged me out. Did you hear about this? Yeah, everybody heard about it, but you know, I didn't hear it to, to that detail of, of Bob. I think that the, the rumor, or at least the story that I had heard way back, way back when was something along the lines that, that Bob had gone in. Ken's bag and, and it wasn't in all that detail or, or anything like that. And Bob had said that, no, Ken knew I was going in his bag and everything was fine. That's, that's about as much as I really ever heard of it and that it was all taken care of from that point forward. Once, you know, I guess Johnny had confronted Bob about it, but I was always under the understanding that it had been squashed and that it was a misunderstanding. 
Bob Holly and Cody lose the titles at night of the champions on June 29th, 2008. And that happens when Cody turns on him and behind the scenes, a lot of people are sort of freestyling that the belts are coming off him and he's going to be fired because of this whole pill situation. And he says, that's all bullshit. And he gets his surgery and he wrote, it bothered me that Cody didn't call to thank me for my help or wish me well after my surgery. I taught that little bastard a lot. So his lack of gratitude bothered me, man. Who knew there was fucking heat with Bob Holly and Cody Rhodes? Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't. And it's, it's, it's funny when you go back and, and read things or listen to things that guys write at certain times in their career and certain times in their life. I would even dare to say that Bob may have a different viewpoint today. Um, but no, I, I didn't know that. And like I said, I, especially when it comes to Dusty having been there with him, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm defending Dusty. But man, he was, he was so on pins and needles not to be viewed that way is, is showing favoritism to his son. Right. That he would, he would back out of shit and he, and he wouldn't have an opinion. He wouldn't do shit so that he wouldn't be accused of it. Right. That's, that's the weird part to me. Well, and, but this could just be sour grapes from Bob, right? And it could be. Yeah, yeah, it definitely could be. It's, it's unfortunate, you know, that this happens this way. Um, so Bob's out a few months because he's got this elbow surgery and then he calls creative to sort of discuss new ideas. And on TV, Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase are getting a lot of heat, beating people in sort of chicken shit heel ways. And he's pitching the idea. What if I come in and bring Billy Gunn in and we do a program with Cody and Ted. So it's veterans against upstarts. They said they think about it, but then he didn't hear anything back. And then one day Johnny calls and says, we don't have anything lined up for you. So he pitches Johnny the idea and Johnny says, I like it. I'll go back and talk to creative. And then he gets a call later saying, sorry, Bob, they just don't have anything for you. Quote, Johnny had been one of my main supporters over the years. He told me he'd gone to bat for me in meetings all the time. And so had lots of the other agents. They knew how long I'd been loyal, how hard I'd work. And I was always on time and I stayed in great shape and did exactly what was asked of me. Yet it all came down to quote, we don't have anything for you. That was it. I was done. I told Johnny that I deserved more than coming back to sit in the locker room doing absolutely nothing. So if creative had nothing for me, they should just go ahead and send me my release. So in January, 2009, 15 years after I'd started with the company, we parted ways. Meltzer wrote in the January 20th, 09 observer. After all these years, WWE acts, Bob Holly, he'd been with the company dating back to his debut in 94 as Thurman Sparky plug, the race car driver. They quickly became Bob spark plug Holly. He won the tag titles three different times and the hardcore title six times, which resulted in his nickname changing to hardcore Holly in the last few years, particularly coming off tough enough where he roughed up Matt Capitelli. He was portrayed as this angry, bitter guy that nobody liked. And in fact, he was fired. And most people on the indie scene were calling folks in WWE to get his number. And almost nobody in WWE had any idea what it was because nobody liked him because he had no friends. That's from the observer. What say you? <laughs> well, I wasn't there when he got fired. 
Um, I'd already left like a month prior to that. I love you said I'd Uh, already left because you had already been fired too. I had already been fired. I'd already been fired too. So a month before that, they had nothing for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's obvious they had absolutely nothing for me. Isn't it? Uh, Let's talk about that for a minute. Here's Bob Holly, who's been here for 15 years. And I'm thinking, I mean, I almost said this a minute ago when I, when I went through that note, I was like, fuck man, 15 years. Like they didn't have anybody who'd been with the company that long. I mean, why would they get rid of somebody who'd been there? And I was like, oh, well, fuck you were there 21. So 22. Yeah. Well, you took a year hiatus. Yeah. Well, you know, still we were talking during that time. At least we talked during that time. So, yeah. I mean, you hear that you know, creative has nothing for you. And he just says, Hey, if you don't have anything for me, just go ahead and send me my release. Well, why would you sort of call their bluff? Well, again, uh, you know, he's a proud guy and he, if there's nothing there, then let me move on and let me go on and earn a living somewhere else. As far as nobody having his number, I think, look, you know, Bob, if you take time to get to know Bob, uh, Bob is one of the most personable, nicest guys you'll ever want to meet. And, I happen to like Bob a whole hell of a lot. I think he's a great guy and a shitload of fun to be around. I think he got a bad rap. He got an un, you know, off of the Matt Capitelli thing, a television show, a reality TV show, folks. Um, he got a bad reputation. And we capitalized on that and we, you know, fed that fire to make that reputation be so that people believed in what they saw. Bob could be a grumpy, miserable son of a bitch backstage sometimes, but you know what? Um, if he's, if he's at a convention or he's somewhere where I am, I'd try to go out of my way to go find Bob Holly and give him a big hug and say hello. Cause he's, he's one of my favorite people. Never had a problem, never had an issue with him doing business in any way, shape or form. And, um, he was just a great guy to be around my opinion. Was it, I mean, when you find out that he's gone, were you surprised to hear? No, because he had been there 15 years. And I think that there was that point where, what do you do with him right now? Um, and maybe they just didn't have anything for him right now. And when he called their bluff, it's like, okay, here's your release. We'll let you go. I think it was the perfect storm in that regard. Were you surprised he lasted in the company as, as long as he did? No, because he was a hell of a hand and he knew how to get guys over. What do you think his legacy in the business is going to be? Uh, being a double tough son of a bitch. And knowing how to put people over. In your opinion, is, um, is Bob a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't bitch about Bob Holly being in the hall of fame at all. Let's go to some questions here on Twitter. We've got uh, a lot of questions from both Facebook and Twitter. We're going to rapid fire these to you. And I guess while we're uh, getting ready to do that, we should remind you about what we've got coming up on the schedule. Stay tuned at the very end of this episode. And we have got a phenomenal preview for you. And this is going to be all about King of the ring, 1993. So if you haven't already, go ahead and fire off your questions for King of the Ring 1993. That's what we'll be covering next week. Uh, let's get let's get going here. Garrett Dean Smith wants to know why was Bob Holly a double tough son of a bitch? Because he didn't back down from anybody, and uh, he just was a double tough son of a bitch. See, I said that without even looking at the questions. That's awesome. He was a double tough son of a bitch. 
Ed Motes wants to know any Bob Holly drinking stories. I think my favorite Bob Holly drinking story was pulling into WrestleMania in Detroit. Uh, John Layfield and I pulling in and seeing Bob Holly carrying Hornswoggle by the waist of his pants, by the waistband of his pants, swinging Hornswoggle like a piece of luggage across this huge field is, is probably my, my favorite. I don't know that Bob was a big drinker. All right, let's get to another question here. Matthew wants to know, despite not holding the WWF title, was Bob Holly heavyweight championship material in your opinion? Yes. Why don't you think it happened? Don't hit me with that fucking lame. He didn't need it. No, I think it would have helped Bob actually. And, and Bob could have been a champion. I think that Bob could have been a good, especially a good transitional champion. I don't know if he could have maintained it for a long time, but Bob would have been a good transitional champion in my opinion. After Bob came back from his injury at the hands of Lesnar, this is from Chris Bishop. Was Holly, Holly ever considered to have a run with the undisputed title? No, he was not. Joseph wants to know who did Bob enjoy more as a partner? Bart Waltman crash or Cody crash. I think I think he had most fun with crash. By the way, it's worth mentioning. I was sort of taken aback during the whole Cody segment. So I texted Cody and he said, yeah, Ryder showed me that. None of that's true. Good. Yeah. Uh, Jack wants to know, were any other gimmicks considered for Bob outside of the NASCAR gimmick prior to becoming hardcore Holly? No, that's what Vince saw for him. Vince, you know, once he learned that he was a race car driver, that's what he wanted him to be. Uh, Philip wants to know, can you share any stories of why Bob is considered to be such a tough guy other than him roughing up enhancement talent? Well, I think lasting three rounds with Bart Gunn in the brawl for all and not getting knocked out. And Bob, you know, just had a reputation, even in the, the racing world of getting into fights and just getting into shit. Shade wants to know what was the reaction backstage when Holly called Michael Cole, a little shithead at WrestleMania 2000 agreement. Uh, Matthew wants to know, was there any consideration for an actual IC run? You know, not that I really remember, uh, Bob was one of those guys that was considered for an intercontinental title run. I think he would have, I think he would have been good. And Bob is like, you asked about the WWE championship. I think that that's a case of the championship would have helped him. Jordan wants to know, do you think there's ever a place for Bob as a trainer at NXT? Yes, I do. I think he'd be a good one too. Do you think the uh, tough enough situation hurts his chances at that? No, I don't. I don't mean with the company. I just mean from a perception standpoint. Again, it's a work and, and people have to, you know, people have to understand the difference between entertainment and and real reality. Brad wants to know, why didn't y'all give him the belt and then let him beat everybody? Well, that was a great idea, but just didn't work out at the time. Corey wants to know, I can't wait for you to get fired up at this one. Who was a bigger bully JBL or Bob Holly? Uh, probably crash Holly. Jesse wants to know in one of Mick's books, he said the only time he popped Bob Holly was with an Elvis Christmas Carol CD. Can we please get Bruce to do Bob Holly singing a Christmas Carol as Elvis? (laughs) Wait a minute. I can't do Bob Holly as Elvis doing Christmas. Why not? Oh, I, 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 that's a tough one. I don't know how the fuck you do that. Your impressions aren't any good anyway. Just fucking wing it. 
I have a blue Christmas without you, bitch. <laughs> I just peed a little. Oh, it was worth it. <laughs> oh my god, we're fucking punchy. Well, because we've been taping for hours and I've been holding this pee the whole time, and you just hit me with that, and you shouldn't have. Uh- God damn, I'm sorry. Uh, Ned wants to know, was Bob's name ever thrown around in creative meetings for a higher profile with someone like Austin Rock or Taker in the Attitude Era while he was building steam and had some momentum? You know, uh, other than that little thing that he did with, with Rock, I don't know that Russo, that he was ever considered in that in that whole echelon during that time. Clint McCoy wants to know, who would win in a shoot fight between Bob Holly and Haku? Haku. Philip wants to know, was there anyone Bob Holly refused to work with or vice versa? No, Bob, Bob was good about that shit. And he was good about getting people over. Well, here's what we're good about. We're good about getting our own shit over. And hopefully we did today. And we hope that you'll get over that. This was a very long episode. I had a great time with it. And I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about King of the Ring 1993. Now, this is a bit of a sleeper year, and I know that we've got some fans here going to say, I don't know, but here's the reality. Let me just tell you, there's so much going on in this show. I mean, first of all, it's a bit of a passing of the guard, if you will, because, and this is sort of something that people gloss over. Brett's about to be a made man again, and he wins the King of the Ring. But this is Hulk Hogan's last show with the company. Next thing you know, he's going to pop up in WCW. So Brett's in Hogan's out King of the ring. 1993 is next week. The week after that, we've got bad blood 2003 on June 22nd. It's all about Sable and maybe the most anticipated show of the year. King of the ring, 1998 coming your way on June 29th. I want to run you through July 2. I've got it laid out, man. July 6th is Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. I didn't tell you this. He sent me a copy of the book. You know, he's got a brand new book out. And we're going to talk about where to get it. Well, because you didn't create, you know, his hashtag. Anyway, he actually signed the fucking book for me. Your friend, Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. It might be one of the coolest things in my little collection now. On July 13th, we've got Muhammad Hassan. And on July 20th, we've got the Invasion pay-per-view. And on July 27th, we've got Vengeance 2003. And you might say, why are you covering that one? How about Vince versus Zach Gowan? Lots of fun stuff coming your way for both June and July. Join in on all the fun if you haven't already. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Of course, you don't want to miss us on Instagram at Pritchard Show, on Twitter at Pritchard Show. But maybe most of all, the two sites you can catch all the fun happenings is BrucePritchard.com for all your t-shirts and live events. And of course, BoxAgimmicks.com. We got all kinds of silliness over there at BoxAgimmicks.com. If you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to do so. And don't forget to snag your tickets as well. Chicago, San Antonio, um, Rochester, New York City, Phoenix, Arizona. I sound like a Ric Flair promo from 1986. And, and as long as this has gone on, tickets are on sale for LA right now. That, yeah. Hook it up right now, man. BrucePritchard.com. And don't forget to ask a question about King of the Ring 1993. And there's a rumor if you missed your tickets to StarCast, which is the place to be over Labor Day weekend, there's a rumor we might have more tickets on sale the second week of June. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Anything else we need to mention here before we wrap it up here, Bruce? 
Do we share the behind the scenes of what just happened? No, let's save it for another day. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.